Josh, what kind of tea do you have? Mm, uh, we're a lady gray household over here. As as many households might be. It's it's a delightful tea. Yeah. And Kevin, what are you drinking? I'm drinking an Earl Grey from Bigelow. Well, that sounds nice. Yeah. I also have tea. Oh. What kind do you have? I have creatine. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's bang. Blue Raz. Oh. That looks so intense. Right, right in the mic. There's the pop. It tastes like... Remember that knockoff Slurpee? That wasn't a Slurpee. It had a bear on it. I'm sorry, are you referring to slush puppies? <laughs> or, or... I, th I think so. Or no, it's... Do you mean an something icy? like that. Yeah, ices. Yes. This tastes like an icy. It's the subpar version <laughs> of a 7-Eleven Slurpee. So if you freeze that and sort of shave it off, you'd have an icy. I think there are chemicals within the Bang Energy drink that will not allow it to freeze. <laughs> that's my, that's my I, working I theory. Or somehow when this liquid freezes, it, it condenses and gets smaller. Yeah. Yes. Hey. So your dogs are barking at you. My cat's already meowing at me. We don't normally yeah, start with the dog barking. Hey, there, <laughs> they've been. They, Ripley's been hunting a fly on and off for all afternoon, and uh, she was. I think she got it trapped in the curtains by the back door. So Buster was providing all the commotion. Nice teamwork. All right, I. I don't know if this whole energy drink gimmick is gonna last for the show josh we'll see also it's 5 p.m here i shouldn't be drinking this at 5 p.m but also i'm an old man who gets sleepy at like 7 30 so i uh i think i kind of need it oh How my does it taste? Is... you seem to be kind of like choking it down you don't seem to be enjoying it i don't it's too sweet it's like it's way too sweet mm -hmm. Way too much. Well, this is the scary thing. There's not a single calorie in that entire thing, and that's what terrifies me. Can, the most. can you list the ingredients real quick? I want to know what you're consuming mm. right now. Sure, I would too. Uh, we got the old classic carbonated water and citric acids. Okay, nothing wrong there. Some flavors, caffeine, sodium benzoate, and now we start getting into sucralose and. EAAs, uh, valine, lysine, theanine, phenylalanine. Whoa. Trypto tryptophan? Wait, that's the stuff in Turkey that makes you sleepy. Uh-oh. This is an upper and a downer. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and then creatine, super creatine, trademark, actually. And then something called cock 10. It's a uh, big C, little O. Big oh, fucking Q Co ten. Co Q ten. That if that's how you choose to pronounce that, then <laughs> yes. by all means that's your decision. Um so yeah, this can't be good for me. Can't be. No. No. 
Um, I'm I'm kind of worried about your systems shutting down the rate that you're you are drinking that. <laughs> I just needed to get it out of the way so I wasn't making a bunch of gross mouth noises throughout the episode. Oh. Um, you know what else has growth? Ma- oh fuck! <laughs> you know what else has gross? Don't laugh at me. <laughs> Do, you know- Do you know what else has gross mouth noises? What's that, Sean? The movie Drive. Hey, listeners, welcome to Nashville CA, your double feature, doubly weekly podcast hosted from a, oh, (laughs) take two. Hey, that wasn't words. (laughs) Uh, I haven't been drinking today, I promise. Um, Hi, everyone. Welcome to Nashville CA, your double feature, double weekly podcast hosted by one guy in Nashville and another guy in California. My name is Sean, and over there is my good buddy, Josh. Hey, buddy, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh, we've got our, our occasional nighttime recording session because we have a third buddy joining us today. Uh, you are, in, of course, enjoying your bang energy. I've got a night coffee here, which already I can tell is doing great for me. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it really well. Uh, You're doing the coffee and the tea. No, I I only have coffee. Earlier is, was Lady Grey, but now it's it's a night coffee, which uh, Lady Grey I think is a caffeinated beverage. So um, there's just lots of it zinging around my system now. That's good. I'm struggling so hard to make some kind of Fifty Shades of Grey S and M pun about that tea, but it, nothing's there. Yeah. But you know who is there? Who is here? Buddy Kevin. Hi, Kevin. <laughs> Hello. It's a wreck today. <laughs> I'm also enjoying some tea. I've got an Earl Grey. Now, Beautiful. Now, Beautiful. Do, you, do you put sugar in your Earl Grey or do you take it black? Black. 100%. I've never even tried that. I know that's like Ooh. a very popular thing in Britain, right? Yes. Yeah. That's, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't, I don't take any I sugar do. in my coffee either. I don't really. I like the sort of bitter taste of things. Yeah, I do my coffee black. The tea, I have to have a little bit of sugar or honey. I've been doing local honey because it's supposed to be good for your your uh, your olfactory senses and whatnot, yeah. keeping the sinuses clear. So, I have done honey before, just never straight sugar, and it's good. It's just not worth the effort. <laughs> just throw a tea bag in there That's... and it's done. <laughs> so, Sean, why are you bagging on my movie already about the, the gross mouth sounds? What's up with that? Because, dude, I forgot. I saw a Drive once in theater. Okay. And I, I know Nicholas. I've seen a bunch of his movies. I know his proclivity for violence. But somehow my brain blocked out that elevator scene. And when it oh happened, my. I was like flashing back to the theater. And just, there's there's a couple scenes in this in Drive that like gross me out really really bad in a great way. That's awesome. That's I don't think we've had that response. We're also gonna be talking about Thief, directed by Michael Mann. And Kevin, that was your suggestion. Yeah. What order do you guys? Did you guys watch these movies in, and what order do you think we should talk about them in? I watched Thief first. I watched that, rewatched that Sunday, and then I watched Drive uh, just yesterday. So 
that's the order I watched it. And I don't really have a preference for which, you know, we want to talk about first, though. I think going chronological makes a lot of sense in this case. I think especially, too, since you could see a lot of the influence of Thief in Drive. I think that makes sense. Absolutely. Okay. Well, awesome. So since we're going to be starting with Thief, directed by Michael Mann, it came out in uh, 1981. And Kevin, this is your choice. So why don't you just tell us what your history is with it? Sure. So I only saw it um, maybe a year ago was the first time I ever saw it. And I think I saw it because I was watch. I was uh, following along with the Blank Check podcast. They were doing Michael Mann, all of his movies, and that was just one that I'd never seen. I actually hadn't seen most of them outside of, um, I think, like Heat and Manhunter. Uh, so I saw that, and I instantly, like, from the first scene, I fell in love with it. You know, the you know the shots of you know rainy Chicago as it, like pans down the alley. Uh, you know, just absolutely gorgeous as Tangerine Dream plays. So it's just like one of those movies where, I don't know about you, but do you ever feel like you have trouble finding a movie you want to watch and you get worried, like, what if I've seen all the movies that I really love? (laughs) And then like you just see a movie that you absolutely blows you away and you're like, no, of course not. There's a million movies that I haven't seen that I'm going to, you know, love. So it's a fairly recent movie, but since then I've seen it like four or five times. Bought the Criterion disc. I. I think about the opposite thing. I think somewhere out there, my favorite band and my favorite movie exist, yeah. and I haven't found them yet. Could be. It's so cool, though, when you have that sensation of when you find something new that you love that like hits that sweet spot. Um, uh, for me, recently, it was discovering the band Ghost. I was like, I don't know where this band has been. Uh, except for I've been frightened of them for years, only having seen their merchandise. I was like, this is too gimmicky and stupid for me. But no, it's just gimmicky and stupid enough for me is what I found out. Those guys are really good at marketing, huh? Yes. I, I, I think they've got a, they've got Funko Pops. I mean, my, my other favorite bands, there's no Bruce Springsteen Funko Pop. I don't think. Maybe. There might be. There might be. Um, so Sean, what is your history with Thief, uh, or Michael Mann in general? Uh, uh, started with Heat. I remember my parents renting it. And as a kid, I think I watched the intro. And if you haven't seen Heat, you should definitely watch it. I'm, this is the first five minute spoiler, but I think my parents told me to I should probably leave the room after they execute the three guards on the armored truck. Mm-hmm, My mm-hmm. parents were then, I think, like, this might be a little hardcore. So I have a good friend, my buddy Azam, who's like the only person from high school who I'm still close in touch with. We play video games and talk movies and everything. And uh, he loves this movie. And his dad's a huge film buff. And his dad always had crazy sound system and home theater and stuff and so this was a high school watch for me with him this was like one of the first dvds that i got and i remember taking it home and loading it on my uh on my ps2 in my room in my tiny little like flat screen gigantic gray box tv that i might have had a vcr built into the bottom of it i don't remember and uh so and then from there uh collateral is fucking awesome 
saw that in high school. And so uh, Kevin is also in Sunday Morning Movie Club with me. Mm-hmm. So we've watched, Kevin and I have watched, I don't know, oh, well over 100 movies together when you count the Thursday watch-alongs. Oh, yeah. And now we sure. watch movies on Tuesdays yeah. and Sundays. We, uh, we've hung out a lot together watching stuff. And so he chose Thief. And this happens sometimes with Sunday Morning Movie Club. When your focus is diverted, especially when those movies start at 5 a.m. for me in the West Coast, sometimes I don't think I give a movie all of the attention that it might deserve. And so this was one where first time I watched this, I was like, it's pretty good, but I, I would want to change some things. And this time watching it, I was like, oh, no, this 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 movie fucking rips. This is so good. This is so good. So, uh, for me, here's the thing. I did not realize this until just now looking over his filmography since, uh, last of the Mohicans, which was, I believe I have to check the timing on it. That was either the first or second date I ever went on in 1992, uh, was to see last of the Mohicans with, uh, Colleen Cara Carney, who is someone I still talk to to this day. Uh, I hope those were spelled with C's. All C's. Okay. Except for maybe a K. Good. No, it's all C's. Uh, who, who I still talk to, and she's still a delightful woman. Um, but I have seen every Michael Mann movie since then in the theater. That's just, Even wow. uh, Black yeah. Hat? Yes, especially wow, Black you're, Hat. You're one of like 30 people that saw Black Hat in the theater. <laughs> Uh, I love Black Hat. There is a director's cut that only aired on like Malaysian television yeah. somewhere that's out there um, if you know the special passwords for it or maybe on my Plex. So I, I also <laughs> have that if anyone would like it. Yeah, <laughs> I think awesome. so. It's interesting. It aired on FX and then somebody went in and recut like the Blu-ray footage uh to the fx version so it's like high def high quality mm-hmm. but the fx director's cut version that hasn't been aired since so one of those cool things so amazing i've never seen last of the mohicans That's cool. i i do remember downloading a pump up mix to listen to before lacrosse games as a 13 year old and it was just like a giant collage of different music songs. And the last of the Mohicans theme was on that. So that's my spiritual connection to that movie. Yeah. Uh, never seen the insider. Uh, I've, I've seen three Michael Mann movies. Actually, I, four Manhunter. I have a weird relationship with the fetishization of Manhunter by the people around me. <laughs> <laughs> people. Complicit in that. People get a little Sorry. too <laughs> excited about that movie, I think, <laughs> from my own personal record book. Ah, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I love I that love movie. Manhunter. So, uh, Kevin, have you seen The Keep? No, that's one I have. I still have not seen. I know that's like a weird horror movie that he directed and is like half finished, right? Yes, and it's really strange i've tried watching it a couple times there's was like a new restoration of it not too long ago um yeah and it's there's moments in it that are beautiful and definitely early michael mann 
Um, yeah. You see the same kind of stuff with like the streaming lights and the use of fog and everything in uh, Thief, but it does not cut together. It's it's like they just set the cameraman free and did not give him much direction um, because it feels like watching some weird Soviet propaganda film or something, just the way the edits work. It's very bizarre, but uh, and I haven't been able to make it all the way through it yet. I'm pretty sure somebody asked him not too long ago if he'd be willing to go in and do like a director's cut of the keep because he loves doing director's cuts like that's part of his Mm -hmm. thing. He likes to just go and make little edits. And he basically said, like, no, there's not enough footage to make a workable movie for that. Like, I just I didn't have the time and it just, you know, production ended too soon. And that's that I would have to, you know, reshoot 30 percent of the movie or something. Yeah. Speaking of re-edits of Michael Mann movies. uh. I recently did a very misogynistic thing <laughs> and and made a Michael Mann with one end cut of heat where I cut all the girls out of the movie, knocked an hour off the runtime, and just made it a tight two-hour emotionless cop robber movie where in the end a wooden inexplicably appears in robert de niro's car and we have no idea who this person is okay i was wondering how you're gonna handle that because yeah she does play a pretty important role in the third act (laughs) Uh, not well didn't handle it well (laughs) Uh, also your characterization of the movie as being emotionless just because it lacks women i that's that is sort there is a lot of emotions there's man emotions going on m a n and m a n n emotions running throughout that movie okay there are but <laughs> as far as their backstories and their character motivations and the the things that pain these men which then cause them to live this life there's none of that so the only real stuff you get is yeah just kind of dude love <laughs> I love the dude love. The, du- the dude love version of Heat. <laughs> Pretty much. Are you so, interested at all in Ferrari, starring oh, Hugh Jackman, directed yeah. by Michael Mann? I'm so excited <laughs> for Ferrari. <laughs> as soon as I saw that announced, I was like, well, I'm going to see that day one in theaters. You've got huge jacked man, you've got cars, yeah. and you've got Michael Mann. Like, this is, yeah. this is all stuff that I enjoy in my dude brain. Uh, one thing I failed to mention that I feel like is, it's going to be coming up is, and this might color my enjoyment of the movie, I am from Chicago. I live here, and I'm from here. <laughs> and this is a big Chicago movie. Are you from the Home Alone part of Chicago, or the Thief part of Chicago? Somewhere in between. <laughs> so Home Alone <laughs> is like... That's probably the best place to be, honestly. Yeah, so Home Alone is like Winnetka, North Shore, North Shore very fancy suburbs. Thief is, you know, dirty, grimy crime Chicago. And I'm from a place called Portage Park, which is like a blue collar, you know, mostly single family homes, part of the actual city of Chicago. But, you know, not nothing very exciting. So uh, this is great for me. We've talked about it before. But to me, Chicago is the city. Um, I've never been to New York. I grew up in northern Indiana and we would go up to Chicago. It was like. 90 minutes away right uh and you could even take you could ride the train up there and we could go shopping for right. the day and um have our little chinatown adventures and i could buy like ninja stars and shit and go home um oh, yeah. but to even when i watched ghostbusters it was like i was like so it's kind of like chicago right even though that's such a new york movie i'm like yeah 
it's Chicago, just a little different. I get it. It's fine. Uh, but so having you and all of the, the Chicago vibes of this, especially that diner, that diner is oh. like spot on. It's so good. Yeah, I was looking into like filming locations for this and I was trying to find that diner, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, wait, are you, are you referring? Wait, which diner are you referring to? Because there's actually two. The, the Tuesday Weld date scene. Or like the date scene that they go on. Oh, the big where um, he has the big where monologue about his past. The, yes. What the hell do you think that I do? Come on, come on, come on! Every morning I walk in for five months, say hi. What the hell do you think that I do? You sell little fucking cars. That's what you do. I wear a hundred and fifty dollars slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear eight hundred dollars suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect D flawless three carat ring. I change cars like other guys change their fucking shoes. I'm a thief. I've been in prison, all right? So what? I don't care. So what? Don't tell me. So what? I never even told my wife that. I don't care. Who is now gone? Did I ever come on to you? No. What'd you see? See? See what? See? I, I am a straight arrow. I am a true blue kind of a guy. I've been cool. I am now unmarried. So let's cut the mini moves and the bullshit and get on with this big romance. Okay, I know exactly where that is. It's no longer there, but it's uh, we have like these o- overpasses over highways that they call oasises. And that is at the uh, Displains Oasis, um, which unfortunately was torn down a few years ago. But it, yeah, you could just like, you know, go in there. It's like for people who are on road trips and whatnot, they could park outside, get gas go in to eat and you know do a little shopping things like that so i've actually i i have been there so my first thought much like you when watching this movie is this is a good looking movie like right off the bat of it's so it's uh, it's evocative and like you you feel it um and the the color palette, the way that he times everything, like the the flashing neon and the fluorescent lights, so they're kind of that sickly color. Um, mm-hmm. And those first few shots just just set the tone so perfectly. I feel like the font, just the font alone, tells you a lot about like the style that this movie is going to have. I was trying to make a Tuesday weld joke in the credits, uh-huh, uh-huh. and the only thing I could come up with was like. I can't even, I'm not even going to do it. There, there's no joke there. I just, Tuesday Weld is a hell of a name. It really is. If for a hell of a woman, Tuesday Weld is uh, forever has my heart uh, as being from the, the television show. What is it? The, uh, the Dobie Gillis television show, uh, which was on Nick at Night when I was a kid. And she played like a teeny bopper in it. And oh, be still my heart. She was, she is a delight. And a just an ageless beauty, I would say. Have you ever looked into like the history of Tuesday Weld? Like I've just looked at her Wikipedia page, but it's it's kind of uh, disturbing and fascinating. She's she's got a sad past, doesn't she? Isn't yeah. there something? Yeah, she she started out as a child actress, so she's you know sort of had mm-hmm. that path of you know like a lot of you know partying and drug use at way too young of an age. Um, like at one point she was asked by, I, I think she was the first choice for Lolita 
And she passed on it. And her quote is, I don't need to play that. I lived it, which is a kind of strange thing to say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I haven't seen Lolita because that doesn't mean anything to me. Okay. But you know, do you, I, ignorance what, is bliss. What, how do you, what do you, uh, Sean? You have, to, you have to at least know You've the You've never made plot. me watch it. Yes. Uh, I, I don't know who's in that movie, who directed it. Oh, Tuesday Wells in it. But no, no she's not. Tuesday Wells is not yeah. in it. Sue, Sue Lyon <laughs> plays Lolita, uh, or Dominique Swain in the, in the remake. It's directed uh, directed by a little known yeah. man named Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, starring Peter Sellers. I mean, come on, and uh, James Mason, I believe, is the Humbert Humbert character in that one. Yeah, I haven't watched it in years, but you have to have a Mason to build a cellar. I tried to completely ignore you, and it did not go well. I was just trying to go over to my notes and move forward. Uh. Oh, that's okay. So, um, James Caan, just James Caan in general, um, wow, what a guy. (laughs) I'm terrified of James Caan in this movie, start to finish, terrified of this man, and wish that I could maybe adopt about... 5% 5% of his personality when I need to stand up for myself. Oh, yeah. 5% would be plenty. <laughs> you could get anything done. The confidence that he has to just tell people just to, like, he just tells people to, like, fuck off straight to their face in the mountain, like, insurmounting odds, and he still is just like, go, go fuck yourself, give me my money. <laughs> <laughs> the, But he also has a tender side because Right after the we see the opening heist where they steal a bunch of diamonds, he goes and shares a Danish with this random dude fishing. Uh, and the like the fact that these guys sit there and comment on how beautiful the shot is, I think is genius. <laughs> it's he's just look at that, it's, that's the sky chief made that. I'm like, it's. I see that shot and I just want to steal it, but I don't even know how you capture things like that. It's so good. And it's so Michael Mann. It's like that early Michael Mann, the combination of man against nature, against something impenetrable um, that he did in those first few movies is just, uh, there's it's sublime, I think, in the way that he frames it, captures it. Yeah, I think that shot was the you know the first time that he used uh, you know somebody looking over the water, which he loves to use. Like there's that famous shot in Heat where uh, Robert De Niro is at his you know Malibu house looking over the ocean with the gun in the foreground. I think there's just something about that shot that Michael Mann loves. Absolutely, this one calls specifically because there's the two of them. To the mm-hmm. to the manhunter shot for me, um, except for there, there's so much done with the framing of um, in manhunter they're looking opposite directions like their their whole body language is different. In this, the two men are kind of both huddled over, and you get the idea that there's kind of a cold wind coming off the water, and it feels a lot more like kind of communal and like a little moment of peace rather than like. Uh, not so much like the calm before the storm, but just an actual moment of calm where there's no anxiety really in it. 
And I think it's a it's a beautiful moment. You get that in this movie too. Later when yeah. he's after the heist is successful, that that pan over the top of their heads. Is that the shot you're talking about? Or are you guys talking about him and the fisherman earlier in the movie him hanging and the out fisherman. in the water? Yeah. Okay, well later when his, he and his wife and the camera pans over them over to the shore and then finally it ends and it's just the water and it's like suggesting like you were saying Josh this idea of almost it's smooth sailing from here on out. Yeah. By the way, you could end the movie right there and just start rolling credits and it's just about a guy doing a heist that was really successful and everyone was happy at the end. <laughs> So I, I would love to talk about that heist. My first biggest worry is he's not using any hearing protection at any point in this movie. No earplugs, nothing. I unfortunately played guitar with a drummer over the weekend, and I don't have my fucking earplugs. And now I have like a minor, very minor earring, but it's like I've been in my head now because now I'm like thinking about tinnitus again and shit, and... So I'm really annoyed with myself. So please, if you're doing anything like this, wear earplugs. This that's, podcast does nothing really else. At least moment. it gets the importance of ear protection out to the masses. <laughs> uh, how they, Josh? How do you think they did that shot where the camera goes inside the locking mechanism of the safe itself? Great question. Oh my gosh. Um, so they're a lot more common now, but there's like a probe lens that you can use. Um, but I also don't know how once you're in there, you get, you see, I think on the second shot, you actually see the, the thing strike and knock the, the pin out of place or whatever it is. And that I have no idea. How do you fit all that stuff in there? Yeah. And you can like a giant big version? film cameras. Yeah. That yeah, the only thing that comes to my mind is you make a, big replica and shoot it tight but i don't know it was such a cool effect mm -hmm. so i actually listened to the uh the commentary for this uh, a few months ago and that was one of the things i hope was hoping he would let us know and he does not so i have no other information on that it's just him and james Kahn kind of having a good time it's a fun commentary whoa i hear michael mann's commentaries are pretty wild this might be a good one for me to start with. <laughs> it's good. It's not, it's not too wild, but he does have some, you know, crazy anecdotes about, you know, various criminals being on set, you know, being technical advisors. Can you do an impression of Michael Mann for us? <sighs> not really. He has like a really sort of like low growly voice. He's like, yeah, this guy was a real thief. I, I cannot do it. <laughs> <laughs> Is he New Yorker? No, he's Chicago. No, he's a Chicago guy. Oh, he's Chicago. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, his his like troop of actors are all Chicago dudes and Chicago like criminals and police guys. Yeah. <laughs> like that's entirely what he works with, which is so cool to see those faces pop up. And you're like, you know, even in the bit parts surrounding James Kahn, um, you see some of those people and you're like that that guy's lived a life like you can tell just by looking at him and yeah yeah he did serve like 10 years or whatever before he came and did this movie james con did no the um uh i know one of the assistants uh for the big mobster guy um did um so you know oh, the person that i know who was recently paroled for this movie is actually one of the cops uh, Uritzi, oh, okay. I believe his name is. He's the one with the weird tie. 
that, you know, he doesn't seem to know how to tie a tie, so it just sort of, like, flaps over itself. He was uh, a convicted felon who was working as a technical advisor for the movie, and Michael Mann just, like, liked his look and personality so much. He's like, all right, you're in the movie. And uh, what about the history of uh, Deep Dish Dennis Farina? Yes. Was Farina the guy with the shotgun with the, the big mustache? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, I, I thought, I was like... Is that Farina or is that a knockoff Farina? I can't tell. <laughs> That's no, the that is the legitimate article. <laughs> so uh, his follow-up to this is Manhunter, and that's when we get Farina in a larger role. Is that yes. correct? I mean, technically his follow-up is The Keep. Um, oh, is he in The Keep? Is... No, Man's follow-up. Oh, okay. The shots of the streets, God, how this, the streets are shining with neon lights, yeah. with the reflecting on the street lights and everything. The, the score by Tangerine Dream, it's, it's not even funny how ahead of its time this was. Just like that just now, 10 years ago with Drive and um, It Follows, um, there's kind of a resurgence of that synthwave movement. And so to go back and watch these movies and Carpenter movies, it's it's just so funny that everyone's trying to replicate this style now, 30, 40 years later. Absolutely. And this, um, we were talking a bit when uh, this movie was first brought up because I suggested, I believe, To Live and Die in L.A. as another neon noir film um, that just kind of slides in the pocket, I feel like, between... Uh, the driver, thief, to live and die in L.A. and drive, like it feels like they're all in the same world, like the same literary universe or something. They all come from. Yeah, I've never seen it. I know, I know. It's it's a um, pain in the ass to find. It's hard. It's not streaming anywhere. The Blu-ray isn't really available. Uh, that's that's not a concern. <laughs> okay. i actually think i already have it it's just i don't know elden ring man elden ring there's not time for movies anymore (laughs) sucking up your life oh you want to hear something really annoying about the uh soundtrack yes it was nominated for a razzie really yeah that fine organization got that wrong. I know. I can you believe that. it? They they usually get everything right. And <laughs> that just uh, that pisses me off. I know. <laughs> like, it pisses me. Off somebody too. does something interesting and different, and they're like, "Nope, no bad. It's it can't be cool and different. It's just bad because it's weird." Yeah. So after the heist, um, we're going to the the fence, and James Conn gets told that the big boss wants to meet him. Mm-hmm. I'll take it myself. Fine. Have someone swing around tomorrow morning. Look, uh, these people want to meet you. What? They're stand-up guys. What do I want to meet? I want to meet people. I'll go to a fucking country club. Okay, okay. (laughs) And this is another great, like, face actor. I don't know where Michael Mann found this guy. Joe Gags, I think his name is. But he just looks like some schlub you'd see on the train or something. Like he just he does not look like an actor. I looked him up afterwards. He has like zero roles outside of this. I have no idea who he was. But he just like he does everything with his face. And his voice. That that dude's voice, like 
I expected something else to come out of him. And then when his voice is pretty low and kind of has, it's a little menacing and it doesn't fit with his person, like the, the look that he has, which makes him very off putting. And I would be like, Oh shit. Okay. Like I'm, I've, I'm messing with the wrong guy now. If I step to this dude. Uh, so the money was lost. There's like a middleman who gets either thrown off a building. I don't think he jumped off. That's <laughs> implied. <laughs> um, and so James Conn's money. Uh, is this? Wait, did I jump the gun on that? No, that's it. Pretty much goes really? straight into okay. it. Yeah. Oh, because we got to go to the plating office. That's right. <laughs> yes. This plating office. How fucking cool is this location with these yeah. giant bay windows and that bridge in the background? And then the fact that the scene ends on the train's arrival. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How is that possible? Uh, do, wh- that is a great. How is what possible? That the ti- the timing of that, I was like, oh, yeah. just amazed at that. Uh, you know, the ability to pull that together or there's no way it was just luck. But no, also that seems crazy, like a lot of logistics to make that happen in the background of the scene. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if Michael Mann was just... Oh, God. I feel like James Kahn is not the person... I don't think you want to tell James Kahn, like, Hey, James, we just need to hang out for 17 minutes until the train goes by so we can get the next shot, so just sit tight. I, I don't want to be the PA that has to tell James Kahn that. But I think Michael Mann has that personality where he's just like... He is just as tough as James Kahn, so he's like, Yeah, we're going to wait for the fucking train. So I think he needs somebody like that to, you know, sort of rein James Kahn in. And it wouldn't, like, I I know, like, the famous shot in Collateral with the coyote going across the road. Like, I know for that shot, they literally just drove around Los Angeles day, like, night after night for just hours a night, just waiting for a coyote to run across the street so they could get that shot. So it wouldn't surprise me if he's like, we're waiting for this train. I don't care how long it takes. Well, I never even imagined that was how they did that shot. I, I thought, of course, they had a Wrangler and a closed street that night. Nope. No that, animals that are harmed. That shot is really... Okay. I'll say. I just We just watched Collateral recently. Excellent movie. Love the coyote shot. But oh, man, no. that Audio Slave Chris Cornell song is so out of place. It's... it's preposterous maybe in 40 years everyone will be laughing at me for that take when everyone's trying to sound like chris cornell from from collateral but who knows yeah maybe it'll take the tangerine dream path where 20 years from now that's the cool thing that's showing up in movies (laughs) white men screaming over grunge rock riffs Uh, i don't know about you sean but for several years chris cornell was my um the the model that I would take in when I would get my haircut was, was pictures of Chris Cornell. I mean, that was very much what I wanted to be. So I'm I'm okay with him screaming over those riffs. I one point I asked the barber to give me a flat top because I wanted I think it might have been because of the movie Necessary Roughness with Scott Bakula. <laughs> but <laughs> The wonderful movie. I love it. It's one of my favorite sports movies. Eventually, we're going to do a sports movie on this show. One of our guests is going to take the bait that I'm offering. Um, but I didn't get a flat top. It was just 
hair that was elevated off my head. It was not the square rectangle that my little childhood brain had envisioned. Now I can't ask the barber to do anything because there's there's no options. If there's <laughs> one option, that's cut it short. Uh, meanwhile, I have to pan the camera up to to fit in the the height of my hair. Uh, there, oh, we there we go. Impressive. Any product in that, or do you? Is it just naturally go up? Oh no, there's um, what is it? Dry dry paste. Um, it's like a, a texturing paste kind yeah. of thing that I use because uh, I mean it's started already wilting along the sides, as you can tell. Uh, I, I need to get the whole thing freshened up. Look at like this whole thing's a mess right now. It needs to get <laughs> needs to get straightened. Like it'd be like me and not get a haircut in uh, over two years now. So save. A Did bunch you of have money. short hair at the start of the pandemic? Oh yeah, I could I could probably send you a photo because I I had a professional photo taken for my new job about a week or two before the pandemic hit, and it's very like you know very tight and you know parted and nice and you know now it's just this mess i will admit i i used some beard bomb because i wanted to look good for the podcast recording just a little management of the wiry hairs you gotta look good to sound good that's not true howard stern has proved that point for 35 years Uh, I love that twice in this movie, someone gets called a goof because with how high the stakes are, it just seems like a word that doesn't have enough gravitas and weight behind it for James Conn to say, Hey, you fucking goof. Look at the wall. (laughs) (laughs) I think Robert Prosky says it too. the, the big bad guy. (laughs) What do you goof? Yeah. All right. The the balls it takes to hold an entire office at gunpoint, is, that's just impressive. Like, he's he's ready for someone else to have the drop on him, and the thing is, nobody can get the drop on him, <laughs> because he's that good. I don't know how this guy has survived this long, though, doing wild card shit like this. This, this, is, this is on another level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes you want to just like just take a step back and you know relax. Like a lot of your problems are you just losing your cool at any given thing. Like if you just like you know just take a minute. That's uh, we're gonna get there because I have some thoughts about the ending. It's it's amazing, but I have some <laughs> thoughts about it. <laughs> I also didn't think that it was uh, necessary what? to point the gun at like all the secretaries and you know other people in that plating office. Like they seemed like they were not going to cause him any trouble. What do you guys think of Willie Nelson in this movie? I thought he was fantastic. Uh, amazing. Yeah, I agree. And he doesn't even really have that much dialogue, but he's doing a lot of storytelling just with his eyes and face. And also, it's interesting to see a beard in an early 80s movie because they that just there weren't many beards around back then. Oh, I feel like one thing we we passed up that I just want to go back to really quickly. Uh they they he goes to his uh the car lot, which you know he he owns, and one of the mechanics is Del Close. The uh you know inventor of you know modern improv. Just like a little acting. Really? Gig. Yeah. Just you know, Chicago I did not actor that. took the role. That's amazing. Uh, I feel as if I should have known that because 
we literally in the script we're working on right now make a Del Close joke about uh, how all the improvisers are actually in a cult and oh, yeah. they live together on the commune <laughs> and, and worship Del Close and touch his statue. Yeah. I, I, I can make those jokes because my wife's an improviser, so it's okay. Okay. <laughs> it's like my friend is a so-and-so. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Yeah, right. it's, it's it's fine. Some of my <laughs> best friends are in the improv scene. It's actually totally <laughs> fine to make fun of improvisers. You don't have to justify it at all. <laughs> as, as a matter of fact, you should. Yes. Uh, next scene is going to be her introduction to Tuesday Weld, right? Where does she work? She's working the desk at... At the diner that he meets uh, uh, the fence at. Okay. Yes. And... They have a past, clearly, and man, this guy, uh, he's trying to fast-track this relationship in a way that I have not seen a person do maybe ever in a movie. This is some of the most, let's get down to the brass tacks right away, no bullshit relationship I've, I've seen. Mm-hmm. He does kind of bully her into marrying him, essentially. <laughs> I do feel like, you know, yeah, you, well, he, you have, should have a little more self-worth Tuesday Well, You don't have to, you know, go along with this guy if you don't want to. Yeah, that, that whole scene in the cafe where he tells her that, like, she's waiting on a train that's just not going to come. Mm-hmm. And basically, she's pissing her life away unless she goes with him and takes this big risk. But the the James Caan also, remember when... Uh, what were those boards called? Dream boards? What, remember that? Like every, a vision board? It was the self... Yeah, vision, vision board. board. The self-help books. James Caan invented that. I didn't know that. <laughs> he's got the little collage with how he wants his life to be. He's got the kids. He's got Willie Nelson there. It's so cute. He keeps it in his wallet and he just pulls it out to look at it. <laughs> it also looks slightly like something a serial killer would make. Well, there are like a bunch of skulls in the corner for some reason. Are there? I did not notice. <laughs> there are. Yeah. Tuesday Wells like, what's all this death? And he's like, uh, I don't know. This is a- <laughs> That's, what do you think of, <laughs> ab- about the way that he talks? Like his whole his whole patois. With I mean, he's got the the very Chicago kind of affect, but the language he uses is very. Uh, it's like, yeah, uh, two or three guys that started beating on me, and then they did some other things, and you know, uh, before too long, I got a beef for uh, for a manslaughter rap, and <clears throat> like, it's just this kind of circular, kind of talking around the edges of very heavy things that happened to him while yeah. he was in prison. I do think that this entire monologue is fantastic. Like, I think this is, you know, some of the best James Con acting there is, and. It, it does, like, I think, you know, we're going to be talking about Drive in a minute. Uh, I do think that James Kahn plays this as a much more, like, emotional, real human being than Ryan Gosling does. Like, he's clearly, mm-hmm. a, 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 you know, he's obviously done some, you know, not great things. But he is, you know, been traumatized in his past. And you could really, you know, understand where he's coming from emotionally in this scene. When they say they did some things, that that line, uh, he skips over the violence. And then I was six months in the hospital. 
there's a lot of weight behind that and a lot of pain. Um, the, also, I'm terrified by her reaction when he tells the story of hitting the guard twice in the head with a baton and essentially long-term killing this man two years later. And she pops a little smile on her face. And that their relationship seems kind of like a Bonnie and Clyde codependent mess. For sure. Because she actually does a it's, similar thing of, you know, just sort of glossing over terrible things when she's talking about uh, going down to Columbia with her drug dealer boyfriend who, you know, is presumably murdered or something. And then she says something like, you know, I was, you know, out on the streets. Things did happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then she came back. So like that things did happen leaves a lot, you know, for you to interpret. That is probably, you know horrifying and traumatizing so i think they're both very broken people do you guys see the similarities between this scene and the cafe scene and heat two characters sitting across from each other at a dining room table basically talking about their histories and how that leads to their own life philosophies yeah oh for sure i think think it's a it's a it's a it's a Michael Mann trope or it's a, I think it's a fascination of his to have people have these very blunt life conversations uh, out in the middle of public, like while conducting normal business. He makes movies about professional people doing professional things and just like moving on. They know who they are and they're just moving forward. Yeah. I love the just the, the Michael Mann style of all the tiny details that he puts in to these heists and to the setups, things that you might not think about or things that you might gloss over the first time. But then on rewatch, you see how these guys are covering their backs and have every single move planned out and thought out. And his, his movies just have that technical, genuine feel that I feel like it's, it, it's not very Hollywood. Uh, these heist setups for sure the the big heist in this one takes a lot from i don't know if either of you have seen the movie rafifi uh, mm-hmm. which uh has a i think 16 minute almost silent sequence of a heist happening and they come in through the roof um it's very similar in that structure i feel like and everything is just weighted on what these guys are doing because they've talked through the plan and now you're watching how much of the plan goes according to plan <laughs> or if, it, if it's going to fall apart and you're constantly kind of on the, the edge of that line, just waiting for things to happen. Yeah. They spend so much time leading up to the heist, setting up exactly what they're going to be doing with the burning and everything that you could just sort of sit back and watch them do it. And you know exactly what they're doing. It just set up so well. I love hanging out with the old man at the metal factory, talking about compounds of the plasma torches that they're making. And the thing that this old man makes, it's like a sparkler from hell, is basically how I look at this thing. It's it's terrifying. This whole setup idea to plasma cut a vault in half is nuts. <laughs> but the fact that they did it for real... It had cameras there shooting. That's the thing that's fucking crazy is that they actually did it. Yeah. So, Sean, I was going to ask you, um, 
because we have a, a an ongoing running thing of this now. The uh, James Kahn owns this car dealership. He owns this uh, bar as well that he runs as a front. What do you think about his bar, the one with the green tinted windows um, that he goes to a couple times? How does this compare to other cinematic bars that we've seen? Would you like to to hang out here? I knew you would like the old man in the shop. I knew you would like that guy. <laughs> Could you get in any conversations yeah. with people at this bar? Could you see that happening? Or is this place kind of like not that cool? No, I'd like it because this place doesn't seem like yuppie at all or anything. Mm-hmm. And it also doesn't seem too terrifying. So you're just going to get kind of a bar filled with a bunch of regular folk. I think I would have had a great time in this place. It, it's like when I lived in San Francisco, this is kind of the vibe I was looking for. Um, it, it, it was harder and harder to avoid the pretentious overpriced ones. So, Josh, were you setting Sean up for anything? Are you aware? Of, do you know what that bar is? No, I do not. Oh, OK. It's actually a very, very famous jazz club in Chicago. It's still there, looks exactly the same, has not changed much since 1920, whatever, whenever it opened. And yeah, we can, I can go there right now. Oh, that's awesome. So, and anytime you guys are in Chicago, let's go. What are you talking about? He blew it up. (laughs) (laughs) I've, I, I, from the commentary, I know all about that blowing up too. They they basically created false fronts for everything. They just created like false fronts for everything and just massive explosions. And for the house, they made the explosion too big, so they actually blew up part of the house, and it had to be destroyed after it has to be demolished. And luckily, that did not happen with the green mill. <laughs> the house explosion instantaneously lights trees on fire in the yard. <laughs> it's horrifying. <laughs> I'm sorry, skipping ahead there. Sorry. Uh-huh. What, what no, is, it's it's good. It's good. Um, what is the other club that they go to? Uh, it's got a great name, and I forgot it. Um, the Cats and Jammer. Yes, the Cats and Jammer. That is that place is very fun. I would love to sit and listen to that band. I think because that yeah. seems like a good time. That is no longer there. I do. There's probably comparable would be like Kingston Mines, which is still around, just like an old blues club. As they pull out there, this is just another tidbit that I noticed while watching it. You see the original potbelly in the background as he like pulls oh. out in like a car. You see the first potbelly, which is now like a nationwide chain. I don't know if you have them where you live, but I've never heard of a potbelly except on people. <laughs> And pigs. Um, uh, the, before you skip the old man here, he says one thing. He says. You got to be a real putz to wear a white coat in a metal factory. What does he think he's going to discover penicillin or something? That's how I feel about baker's hats. Any baker that chooses to wear one of those fucking tall white paper hats. What are you doing? What are you? Why? Why do you don't? Please don't. Just that's, don't do that. That's where the rats hide. The rats. And then they tug your hair and they make you do things. That's what those hats for. Yeah. Don't you dare start comparing bakers to chefs, Josh. That rat was a chef, okay? (laughs) There's like a big turf war between bakers and chefs. Don't ever mix the two up. Actually, uh, uh, 
many at no it's only at one bakery that was really fucked up there was such a divide between the pastry chefs and the bakers that it was like they were two teams competing against each other as opposed to just working in one kitchen for one single business uh it was a <laughs> it was a mess the owners one guy owned three quarters of the business and was the baker the other owned a quarter and was the pastry chef and these two guys just started to hate each other by the end. Was it like mommy and daddy were fighting? It was. I showed up there and then I tried to like heal the family. Because uh-huh. that's what I did as a kid growing up when mom and dad would fight. Because I would try <laughs> to fix things a little bit. And, uh, and then I started to fall for a pastry chef assistant. And we started dating. And then... And then that... Yeah, I had to leave that bakery because it just started to suck. And she went to New York City. New York City? Uh, James Kahn smokes filterless cigarettes in this. I think I told you, Josh, that for a while I was rolling my own cigarettes so I could get better at joint rolling. Uh-huh. And within a week and a half, my fingers turned orange. Yes. Like Cheeto orange. Yeah, I've seen people with those tobacco-stained fingers. I think that just lasts for a long time, too. Yeah, no, it doesn't just like wash off in one, one go with some dawn. It's it permanently stained your skin. That, yeah. So the old man. Oh, the old man. I I just like looking at IMDb. I got some trivia about the old man. He is the father okay. of Andrew Davis, not uh, who is the director of such films as The Fugitive and Under Siege. So that's that's that amazing. Really? Yes, Fugitive, another fantastic Chicago movie. Yeah, we were just talking about The Fugitive recently, and I haven't seen that in at least 20 years. I would love to rewatch The Fugitive. Uh, the, the Fugitive was the first movie that I saw that I was like, that I recognized landmarks in. That I was like, oh, I know where that is. I've, I've been uh, past that hotel. Like, that's the way that it's stuck in my brain. Um, also, my screening of The Fugitive at the um, cardiology convention, is that what's happening in the, in the movie? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and when he gets carted off, the film broke during that scene. Uh, and I remember being very upset because I was like, what's happening? I don't know what's going on. They want to hurt Han Solo. That's an experience that people don't. I've never have experienced that. Yeah. I, I've never had a movie stop or paused or anything. It happened to me once, and it was during like a repertory screening of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And it was right as the duel scene was sort of ramping up. So it was like the most tense part of the movie, and then just all of a sudden just burn, and then just stark white. And it was, you know, I'm glad it happened to me once, but it was kind of annoying at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we're moving on. We got the courtroom scene. Where I, I think they get Willie Nelson released from prison because of his failing heart. And, after, and then we're also doing the adoption thing after this. Okay. So Willie Nelson was considered old at this point. Old enough that he had a failing heart and they were going to get him out of prison on this. And now it is, what, 41 years later? and. Willie Nelson is still old as hell and just awesome still and just kicking ass. Like that's a man right there. That's a guy 
who you can go to town with, I think. Well, how old do you think he was in this movie? Like, he probably was like, I know he looks older, but he's probably like 48. Yeah. I was going to say 50. Yeah. I was trying to figure it out because the crow's feet around his eyes are so deep. And James Caan looks like a child in comparison to him. Um, And, you know, Caan looks like a big manly man the rest of the time. But in that scene where they're like practically face to face in that uh, little cell in the in the prison um there's a stark contrast between the two gentlemen dude when willie nelson fogs up the glass saying get me out of here that was kind of haunting yeah yes i mean his whole performance is haunting Um, like he does that eye thing where he's not really like focusing on one thing he just eyes are kind of like darting back and forth and it's just like i imagine he's just so you know traumatized that yeah he plays it really well in the courtroom scene, did you like the little exchange between the the attorney and the judge? Did you notice that, John? Uh, you're going to have to remind me of that one. So the uh, attorney basically puts four fingers on his his cheeks like this. And then the judge retorts by putting eight fingers on his cheeks. And then the attorney comes back and says six or, you know, and then, you know, so he's basically negotiating a bribe in open court by using little finger sim- symbols. And then at the end, he's like, oh, yeah, so you can get him out for six thousand dollars. <laughs> so it's just like a nice little bribery I did not pick scene. Up on that. That's awesome, though. That's some like better call Saul kind of stuff right there. Oh, yeah, that's in my notes. The word bribe was like five lines in a row uh, because. They bribe the judge, they do the weird finger thing, uh, the cops want to bribe, he tries to bribe the lady at the orphanage when she finds out that she, that he's an ex-convict, <laughs> and then the mob boss offers him a kid, which is kind of a bribe to keep him in the life, uh, and oh, sure. absolutely, it, that whole storyline, I was wondering what Sean thought about it, like, the fact that James Kahn wants a child, it's part of his vision board, he wants this life. He wants a wife. He wants kids. He wants it all right now. And nothing is going to stop him, including legality, apparently. Like, a lot of guys, they have the the arc of they get out of prison and they're like, no, I'm going to do everything the right way this time. James Conn is like, no, I'm going to cover my ass, but I'm going to do things however I can. And which includes, I believe, once the system doesn't work out for them, the implication is that this child is the child of a prostitute uh, who works for the mob boss. Is that kind of, did I understand that correctly? That's the impression I got. Yes. Basically somebody who is willing to sell their child. And I do wonder what the legality of this would, I mean, I know it's illegal, obviously, but like now (laughs) you just have a baby. Like, how do you Mm -hmm. like get a social security card? You have to like, you know, claim them as a dependent like what's the legal steps of making this random baby that you got from some lady your own they don't really go into that no it's just now you got a baby this whole idea of having this family and this wife and he got out of prison at 31 Mm -hmm. he went in around 20 years old and so i'm guessing he's mid 30s to early 40s his character in this movie he says he says he's been out for four years so he's 35 years old so he's my age so that 
I feel a little better about how I look now because I think I look younger than James Conn did in this. Uh, my shoulder hair is approaching his level, unfortunately, <laughs> but there's nothing I can do about that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but I think about like myself. I'm single. I'm 35 years old. And thankfully, I don't, I've never really envisioned my life having kids, so I don't have that ticking clock. But I still feel the ticking clock regardless, honestly, of like everyone's getting scooped up. Everyone's already married and moved on. And being a bachelor in your mid-30s, it's a, it's a lonely world out here. And so I, I kind of get where his sense of urgency is coming from. Like, this has to happen now. But what he's doing is he's trying to just, like, steal this life. Yeah, He's trying to set this life up like it's another job. And if he just sets up and takes this, takes this, takes this, he's got the score, and then he can retire. The I think it's so interesting, the contrast between these two movies, the fact that James Caan is a character who literally shows you, this is my inner life. He's got this picture that is like, this is what I want, this is what I dream about, this is what I hope for my future, and uh, Gosling, as the driver literally has no inner life. You see the inside of his apartment and there's nothing in there. He's got like, he's a hollow shell of a person who does nothing but work. And it's like, even though these movies are tonally similar, the characters I think could not be more, couldn't be further apart. Really. I think James Conn on the outside is what Ryan Gosling is on the inside. Ryan Gosling like hides all of his shit, whereas James Conn is wearing it on his sleeve. But they are both equally terrifyingly dangerous men. But I don't think James Conn is a sociopath. And I do think Gosling has almost zero emotion. Yeah, he seems to character. be missing some essential part that makes you a human being in drive. Like he it's just like there's a part that is missing from him. Khan is complete. Khan is just Khan's just a lifetime criminal. Yeah. But I don't I wouldn't say Khan is a sociopath. No. Also just to point out their uh their names are Frank and Jesse. Frank and Jesse James, two outlaws. Oh. Didn't notice that. Are we going uh, are we going to talk about the uh, adoption scene or the adoption agency scene too because this has one of my favorite uh insults. I take it as an insult anyway, yeah. which is what are you Kevin, from, what, what, what are you from the what suburbs? What does this line mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not did you grow up in the suburbs, it's then the rat rat. I think he's saying right. What? Right. Right. Is he? I believe so. I was hearing rat like he was calling her a rat from the suburbs. You know, you're not smart enough to take this any more than you are to, to, to recognize good parents. Get out of my office. You did not ask about us. You didn't ask what kind of people we are. There was a child waiting, and you are denying us him and him us. Who the hell are you? Don't make a scene. Our criteria. Your criteria? Your criteria are so far up your ass they can't see daylight. This is bullshit. It's not happening. Let's go. Look, I got some ABC-type information for you, lady. I was state-raised, and this is a dead place. A child in eight-by-four green walls. After a while, you tell the walls, my life is yours. Well, did you grow up in the suburbs? Yes. Right. Right. No, no, I, be I believe she's, he says, what are you, from the suburbs? She's like, yes. And he's like, right. 
Right. It's like basically saying you don't understand what it's like growing up in an institution or, you know, out on the streets. Like you are from a comfortable existence. You don't really get the people you are trying to help is what I think he's saying. Okay. That makes more sense because the rat thing was the part that was really throwing me off of that line. Got it. Uh, I love this whole sequence when the cops try to pinch him and he goes, if you want to pinch me, I'll be out in 10 minutes. If not, get the fuck off my car. Uh, just, How fun is pinch, this guy's too? On, this, uh, this guy's on like a scorched earth campaign right now. He's just telling everyone to fuck off. Yeah, because the cops are trying to shake him down for 10% because they know he's now working for uh, Prosky. For Leo. Yeah, let's talk about... We haven't really talked about... No, we haven't. Um, who's the actor who plays... Uh, the big boss. What's this character's name? Leo, I believe. And his uh is Robert Prosky as Leo. Right. Yeah. And this is Robert Prosky's first movie role. He is, I believe, in his sixties at this point in his life. And he's been doing like theatrical stuff, but this is the first time he's ever been in a movie. Wow. That's that's pretty mind blowing because I thought he was fantastic. Oh yeah. He he's like he set the he set the mold for you know later an Albert Brooks kind of guy, like old guy physically not very intimidating, but fucking terrifying. He also does that really great thing where he tries to present himself as this fatherly figure, like this you know nice buddy pal type guy, uh, which of course you know later on he reveals is not the case. But I think Robert Prosky plays it to the point where you can always kind of tell he's full of shit. Like you can always tell he's kind of putting on an act and there's something sinister underneath what he is saying. We just watched The Natural and that's a great example of that. Yeah, with Prosky again. Being the the team owner who's up to no good. Yeah, again Robert Prosky. That's this is the same man who plays Santa Claus in the Miracle on 34th Street from like the 90s. That's yeah astonishing to me <laughs> that is that's what you call range right there he's also in gremlins 2 as the uh the vampire character the you know grandpa <gasps> monster analog he's in there yes uh do you guys have any favorite phone bugging stuff from movies or tv because oh. there's a lot i again i'm going straight vince gilligan better call Saul, but there's there's one story in particular with Mike in his car and trying to find the bug that it's it's my favorite by far. This is probably a fairly basic answer, uh, but I, I just saw it in theaters too, but the conversation is all about phone bugging. <laughs> and there's so much great stuff with that. If you have not seen that, I highly recommend it. I don't know that one. I, I the only one I know is um the lives of others i think that that's a great one german too. cold yeah. war phone bugging movie what's what's the conversation uh, the, the conversation, conversation it's a francis ford coppola movie oh you go ahead you take it josh i was just gonna say it's um coppola's film starring gene hackman and it is it's one of my favorite movies um kevin i don't know when it screened up there it's screening down here this week i'm going wednesday night nice uh to see it so a couple of weeks ago tomorrow yeah. tomorrow night i think i guess they're doing a road show of the the new restoration of it um and 
it is one of the ultimate paranoid thrillers about uh, Gene Hackman, who all he does is surveillance. He's not supposed to, he doesn't pass judgment on people. He just does detective work and he doesn't prosecute anything. He doesn't do anything else. And he gets pulled into this world that he wants nothing to do with. And it's just about how, once again, like the driver and drive, like he doesn't have, his life is very segmented and regimented so that nothing can pull it apart. And he pulls it apart himself in a really beautiful way. And there are some great looking for the bug scenes in this movie that is just, oh, chef's kiss. Conversation is so good. So good. I need to see more early Hackman stuff for oh, sure. He's, great. he's awesome. Same with James Kahn. After seeing this and having watched uh, Godfather 1 and 2, um, kind of for the first time recently, I, I definitely want to watch more James Kahn also. Did you guys see that movie he was in most recently, The, the Good Neighbor, where he li- he's an old man living across the street from some kids, and these kids want to fuck with him, so they set up a bunch of cameras in his house and then are, like, fake haunting him? No. Check it out. It's, I, I did, that's, that's like the first five minutes of the movie premise. So I, I didn't spoil anything, but okay. it's really good. And he gives, he gives like an excellent performance as a very old man. Yeah. Hot take, but I think Gene Hackman uh, is a pretty good actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Willie Nelson dies. And that's, that's a real bummer here. And with the doctor does mouth to mouth, which was just shocking that hospitals back at this point don't have those plastic breathers. So people in hospitals are still doing mouth to mouth. Like the idea of that is kind of scary. And when the doctor tells Frank that his buddy died, what do you think of Frank's reaction here? Because he's, he seems completely frozen. Like he doesn't even know how to respond to this i think he's he is broken like uh okla willie nelson's character uh or david i guess is his real name um was such an integral part of this thing he was putting together like he wanted him to be his partner on the heist he wanted him to be part of his straight life like it's it has not occurred to him that he is not going to achieve his goals yet and this is like the the first thing that's really been taken away from him i think since he's been on the outside like he's had great success in his life opening these two businesses he talks about the the suits he wears and the watch he wears and the cars he drives and the thing is none of that can make up for his best friend who he's been through it with being taken away from him and he wasn't ready for it yeah and he's really the only family that James Kahn, or Frank, has. He even appears on his little vision board, too. He's the only real person, you know, that's not like an abstraction that appears on the vision board. So he's the only, you know, prior to, you know, marrying Tuesday Weld and, you know, getting his baby, he's really the only family that he has. And I know a little acting tidbit from the commentary from James Kahn for this part where he looks at the doctor. 
Uh, so it was unscripted, but he just sort of decided to stare at the doctor super intently and not break eye contact for an extended period of time. And I guess the doctor actually like kind of like got scared of James Kahn just mad dogging him and was like, oh, boy. <laughs> Dude, uh, you don't know if this guy's going to snap and punch the doctor in the face for failing or what. Yeah. So yeah, you get the feeling of that fear when the doctor asks him if he wants to sit down. <sighs> so let's see, they get the baby, and at the restaurant they decide to name it David. And then James Conn gets the metal rods from the guy. There's an awesome spiral sh uh, staircase shot. I love either an up or a down. Either way, you shoot a spiral staircase. When you put the camera right in the middle of it, you got me every time. Yeah. And that, I just like that we see Jim Belushi, James Belushi going down those stairs. I don't think we've talked about James Belushi at all. No, we haven't. What do you guys think of James Belushi? <laughs> also first major <laughs> movie role. Wait, is, is he the, the main cop? Who is he? No, he's um, his partner. Barry, I think his name is. Whoa. That's James <laughs> Belushi. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, that's wild. That's pretty. I did not even realize that. Yeah, I think he does a pretty good job here. Uh, I thought he was good. I think every, you know, I, I always worry when you're the sidekick to a thief or a criminal because it rarely ends well for you in any form of media. And it didn't end good this time either. <laughs> he gets the, the, the shit shot out of him. Like, I gotta say, that's one of the biggest squibs i've ever seen there's two squibs in these movies this one and then later in drive that are like literally mind-blowing <laughs> squibs yeah because this one it's a, it's a front squib too but he also has like massive back explosion for the exit wound that he just his, his, his jacket is shredded in the back yeah and it's like there's chunks flying and hitting the car behind him. It's gnarly, man. I think it's the viscera for me. It's the chunks that does it. Yeah. Like they clearly just packed like meat into some squib pack. <laughs> just blew it up. <laughs> so the cops pull Frank over and kick his taillight out, beat the shit out of him. This is where one of them yells at him that you've got to be a goof. <laughs> um... And then, so the cops are on to him, and they say they're going to be on his ass. So they release him, and the part where he then drops the the tracking device and puts it on the bus. I love what a part. great effect to do in post to have the beeping get louder and louder and then quieter as you approach and then get away from the bus. And to send those cops to Des Moines of all places is just especially cruel. <laughs> That's such a fun reveal too. Cause I think at that point, like the music is just really kicking. Like it's super hard tangerine dream. And then it just sort of like pans around the bus. Cause you don't see him put it on the bus. You just sort of see him walk somewhere and then walk back. And then you see them following. And then it reveals like the bus and then it like zooms in on Des Moines and it's so good. And then that point it pretty much goes right into the heist. Yes. Um, we've discovered that the, uh, the mob who owes him money and the mob who wanted him to work for him are the same people, um, which 
James Khan is so hungry for his new life that he is willing to to work for these people. Like yeah. this is his part of his whole thing with Tuesday Weld uh is no, I'm just going to make this happen. He tells her like I'm just going to do a couple scores with these guys because they offer him to make him a millionaire within 4 months or 6 months or something. And it's just an insane uh risk. He talks about that it's an insane risk and then he does it anyway for this huge job uh which is just nuts. Like dude, you just told us that this is a bad idea and now you're doing <laughs> now you're doing it. It's it's the same downfall that De Niro has in Heat. He says you have to be able to walk away from anything in 30 seconds and then at the very end he has to stop because there's one loose end that he can't walk away from. And that that's what ends up getting him. I also want, like, I also wonder, like, you know, if you just sort of pull back, like you have two businesses, at least, I think maybe three, I think he also has like a car, uh, 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 clothes, you know, a wash too. But I mm-hmm. like, you could probably just, you know, run your car, you know, your, you know, the, the car dealer and your bar, and you could probably live a nice, comfortable life with, you know, Tuesday Weld. Mm-hmm. He's not looking for comfortable. Yeah. He wants to change his car as frequently as other guys change their shoes. See, that's the thing. I think he says that's what he wants, but I think he also really wants the action. It's about the juice, baby. Yeah. So let's get into this heist. Um, we start with... with uh, that circular saw, that gas-powered circular saw, which shout out to High Tension if you haven't seen it, um, have and you want to see what happens to a person in one of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's a way to sell it. But I love th- this part. This is where we get into some nitty-gritty technical shit of peeling away the top layer of the roof, cutting through the beams. You hear James Con grunting as he's cutting away the pipe section because using power tools at awkward angles sucks and everyone knows that so that just felt very human and then his boy check in every single wire with a multimeter to see which one's the security line which one's the phone line i'm so in on this michael mann super technical (laughs) stuff yeah even from the first heist when he shows like the super close-ups on the the drill pieces and there's like one shot that he returns to over and over again as um he's like using the press and putting up the magnet on the on the side of the thing and you just know from the beginning that it's whether or not they actually would make sense and work in the real world this whole thing has been thought through like he is not leaving anything to chance and you are going to know how to bust into one of these safes by the end of this movie. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, whether it works in the real world. Apparently, every single tool used in this is like an actual thief tool, including that drill at the beginning, which is like modified with a magnet. That was one of the technical advisors, actual thief equipment that he used to break into uh, uh, safes. He would brought it to the set and they just used that. So that was not only actually, you know, a uh, uh, you know, real piece of equipment. It has been used in crimes and, you know, in real life. There's another tool later where it's, it's a drill press that you manually screw into the, the lock column until it gets all the way drilled in there. 
and then there's a movable handle that helps you yank it out and you just pull out the entire uh cylinder in one pull yeah there's so much cool stuff like that in this i love it it's ah, it's the best um so we're dropping down inside now and this is where we're gonna start plasma cutting and the ignition of this thing, the putting on of these gigantic hood helmets, the fire extinguishers, this shooting this does not look safe in any way. This is terrifying. Looks horrifying. Like you could actually see as it's being used, like the floor is just setting on fire as they go and they have to go in with you know, the, the fire extinguisher to put it out. Josh, do you think they put a welder's mask filter? on the lens to see, to see the shots of the melting metal and the pieces of metal falling off as they melt through it. How do you think they filmed that? I was thinking about that. Like you would have had to use something that's so, um, so densely like polarized to be able to see that because otherwise it would just blow out. Right. Like there would be no information there on the film. It would just be, <laughs> just be hot white streaks with nothing else uh and the amount of detail that you can see but if you look around it right like you cannot see the rest of the door that they're cutting through but you can see those big globs and the sparks as they fall um so i think it is like something uh, incredibly thick smoked glass that they're shooting through to make that work and two-thirds of the way through this when we then jump with the camera inside of the vault and all of this plasma and molten metal is getting showered on us, the audience. Oh my god, it's amazing. The whole time they're spraying down the uh, the floor and everything with that with the fire extinguishers. And they have another fire extinguisher sitting there ready to go. Like, it's just, no, this is the cost of doing this job. Is We are going to completely destroy everything in this room, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I do like the phrase, too, when they, like, say what the... I I like the phrase when they first say what the safe is. Like, I forget the name, some fancy British safe. And then James Caan just goes, "Hmm, so it's a burn job. And you just think, like, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) And I think even, like, your (laughs) wildest imagination is not going to come up with what the reality is of them just melting through the door. So once they're inside the vault, I think the, the scientific term for how much they steal is buckets of diamonds. (laughs) a cubic shitload of diamonds (laughs) and the fact that they just dump these diamonds into a backpack i was like put like a kroger bag or something in there like (laughs) to keep them from it seems like you'd like lose them in the seams i haven't seen someone look as cool in a while as grease covered james con smoking an unfiltered cigarette looking at the vault with a sense of satisfaction on his face. Yeah, I think that's the happiest we see James Kahn is like, I fucking did it. So at this point, we're, we jump cut now to the ocean, and we're running around on the beach. And this is where Jim Belushi tackles his girlfriend, <laughs> and I was sure he took out her ACL. It looked like a full like football tackle. Like I wonder if James Belushi like played football in high school or something, because that looked like he just n- knocked her down. I don't know if that was intentional or not. How, how funny is big James Kahn with a little yellow plastic fork digging in the sand? 
<laughs> looking for shells. Um, so when they get home from the beach, oh, that's where we get that awesome zoom shot to yeah. the ocean. This is where you can create an edit where it just ends and it's just a happy ending. The end. Mm-hmm. When they're having sex, and thankfully we don't get to see it. Uh, thankfully. It pans to a <laughs> shot of I don't know what. What it was that the moon and clouds? I I don't know what the shot it cuts to is. Like a dark blue yeah. shot with splotches on it. I don't know. I believe it's the ceiling of the room and uh like branches from the tree outside are being reflected or the shadow of the tree outside is being sort of projected onto the ceiling. That would make sense. I, I it just felt like I was looking at abstract art yeah. and in a Michael Mann movie that felt very confusing. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Michael Mann, I think for all of his macho-ness, I think he's really like a visual artist at heart. Uh, like, I, I don't know much about his childhood, but I imagine like if he probably had like a, you know, hard-ass father or something. But like, if he didn't have that, he would just be making like beautiful art. Because all of his mu- movies are, are gorgeous. You know, like first and foremost, they're just like visual masterpieces. I think um, there's also a lot of... Um like geometrically the way he shoots things is very i mean he he definitely copies from paintings the the famous yeah. scene from heat is copied from a painting but he has a lot of these almost edward hopper-esque um frames that he uses of like people being dwarfed against architecture um you see mm-hmm. it a lot more in heat uh and collateral uh, as he goes on but there's definitely this like the kind of the brutalism of architecture and humanity being pressed up against it. And this is like, uh, I mean, there's a definite thread of these love scenes, uh, with these kind of moon reflections through his filmography too. I think collateral catches some of the, like the essence of living in San Diego growing up. Like just, the gas stations that are filmed and everything underneath those orange sodium lights. It, it, it's a movie that feels more like home or like a movie that was filmed around my house and where I grew up than almost anything else. The other one I would say is paranormal activity because my sister moved into a prefab house, very similar to the one in paranormal activity where it's just, you'd get these communities popping up with thousands of those houses and so that movie felt especially kind of spooky to have been inside something like that. Thought you were going to say your sister moved into a super haunted house. <laughs> <laughs> deal with some ghosts. If only. If only. <laughs> uh, after the job is done, uh, somebody, Mitch, somebody tells Big Boss that Frank is Dr. Wizard. And I just thought that was a <laughs> hilarious compliment to give a man. Uh, and this is where Frank finds out that He's been shorted his cash. He was expecting a couple hundred thousand and he got like 80,000 and the rest has been invested into some real estate thing. And basically he's now in big boss's pocket. Yeah. This is Prosky trying to be, you know, friendly grandfather while also fucking him over. He's like, it's a great deal. I've got you invested in some, you know, strip malls in Fort Lauderdale. You know, you're part of an S corp now paperwork's at your house. And of course, it's just, you know, tying him closer and closer to, uh, yeah, tying Frank closer and closer to Leo. He's just, you know, more and more trying to get him in his pocket. Dude, the moment where 
Prosky goes, oh, I got another score for you in about six weeks. And Khan has such a wonderful take. Well, you're light. 830,000 supposed to be here, and I count what? 70, 80, 90. That's because I put you into the Jacksonville, the Fort Worth, and the Davenport shopping centers with the rest. I take care of my people. You can ask these guys. Papers are at your house. It's set up as a limited partnership. A general partner is a subchapter S corporation. You, you got equity with me in that. Well, count me out. <laughs> I thought we had this good thing. Plus, I got a major score in Palm Beach for you in six weeks. You talking to me or somebody else walking in this room? What's that supposed to mean? It means you are dreaming. This is payday. It is over. He looks behind him. But does someone else walk into the room? Who are you talking to? <laughs> <laughs> so now we're going to get a montage as the gang takes down Frank and his buddy and beat the shit out of his buddy and they ambush him in the parking lot. Yeah. And like we said before, this is where... Uh, that squib happens. And this is the first time we see Frank really get his comeuppance. Because even when he was getting the shit beat out of him by the cops, he clearly didn't care. He, that, that didn't really phase him. No. But in this scene, pinned to the ground with his dead friend next to him, you see a different side that James Caan shows. I do want to say before, yeah, that the shot of him like pulling up to... Uh, the the car yard and just like all of the overhead lights and him you know walking toward it's one of the most beautiful shots i've ever seen in a movie like michael mann shoots night scenes better than anybody else ever has i think agreed the um i don't know if you've watched it's been a long time since i've seen the commentary for this or for collateral but i remember on collateral they went through like dozens of paint jobs on the the car that Jamie Foxx drives because mm. Michael Mann wanted the reflections to come off a certain way. Like yeah. he wanted the paint hue to be correct, but also the hue of the reflection had to be just right and stand in contrast to the, the rest of the night scenes. And it, his stuff feels so kind of naturalistic that you wouldn't think that he goes to that extreme. But when he talks about like, Oh no, we replaced all of the light bulbs on this street. To, to match the color that we wanted. I'm like, oh, okay. He's a perfectionist. Got it. He's, he's a step away from David Fincher. I understand this now. Those orange sodium lights have tripped me out a few times in parking lots where I've been walking to... It's not my... It's my car, but it's a completely different color because of how the paint is reflecting. Where I had a red car at one point, and it, it would look oddly like green-yellow underneath those lights yeah uh does so how is he getting rid of the body what's does he have fish in those tanks what's I, what's in those tanks that they dump the body into i believe it's a food processing place mm -hmm. so i think he mentions uh at one point during his his evil monologue that he's going to turn his family into wimpy burgers so <laughs> I don't know if that was tr like literally true, but he might be processing James Belushi and putting him into like ground beef, basically. That wow, <laughs> the impression I got. Whoa, that happens in Naked Gun. 
Guy gets turned into a hot oh, yeah. dog. So, um, so what do we think of so, his monologue here? Leo. Uh, so, Josh, you were asking before, what do I think of Khan's delivery and accent? Mm-hmm. One thing I do think is he's so direct, but slightly slow-spoken that you feel he's choosing every single word. But I think he's also slowing himself down purposely so that he's not too emotional when he talks. That he's able to rein it back a little bit so he's not completely hot-headed. But he talks, he talks like this. I, I am throwing you out. It's over. It's done. Yeah. The, um... yeah. To hell with me. To hell with everything. Yeah, uh, James Caan actually has a little bit about that in the commentary. He does not use any contractions in the movie. Like, he does not say, I, I'm going here. I am not, you know, he just says, I am, or it is. He uses zero contractions. And I guess that's a deliberate choice because in, in his mind, even though it is slower, Frank does not want to repeat himself. He wants to, you know, just get all of the information out at once. He just, like, he you know, wants to be understood as clearly as possible. That's, that's such a great point. Cause I think that's what I'm picking up on as far as this, the slow pace of it. And yeah, everything this guy says, he wants to be cogent and straight to the point because his clock is ticking. So he doesn't have time for any nonsense. I think, uh, the contrast between, um, his straightforward kind of bullish manner and Prosky's like kind of slang filled um diatribe his his Dr. Evil speech that he gives is so good because we've seen both of these guys now and Prosky I, is truly frightening in this moment the angle that he is shot at the looking up at him is it's a lot like he's he's towering over you and he's got those big glasses and the fact that he says he's going, what is it? Um, it's the line about the wimpy burgers. Like the people will be eating your family and wimpy burgers tomorrow and they won't even know it or something. And you're like, no, this man is serious about this. He's not like just throwing these words around. These are guys who their, their words carry weight and mean something. And it's just, it's so frightening, and I don't know if I agree to the extremes that Frank goes to, that he needed to, but I can understand the motivator that happens based on this scene. Uh, yeah, so Frank basically realizes his entire dream board is finished, so he says, uh, to hell with you, everything, you're out of here, gives her money and says, take the kid, get out of here. Uh, at one point he says, I don't, what does he say? I don't even care about you. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and then, yeah, he blows up his house with an incredible explosion, blows up the green mill cocktail lounge, cocktail lounge with an incredible explosion, burns all the cars with an incredible explosion and throws away his vision board there. I know, I like he like crumples it up and throws it out, and then the camera sort of slowly pans down to the vision uh -huh. board to really nail that home one last time. So, with how willy-nilly he was splashing around that gasoline can, 
I really hope that they gave James Caan water and they already had all the gasoline and flammable shit in place because I was terrified that he splashed some of that on himself and he's just going to light himself on fire there. My brother-in-law has a twin brother and this was Halloween 15 years ago and they had a chiminea outside, one of those little tiny fireplace kind of deals and someone was trying to get the fire going and so somebody decided that it'd be cool to take a, a cup of lighter fluid in a solo cup and then throw it onto the fire. And the fire, of course, chased back to the cup. Somebody then, like, flung the cup. And my brother's twin, my brother-in-law's twin, is wearing Dutch lederhosen and gets covered in flaming liquid. And so now <laughs> people are in the party or have them on the ground patting them off to douse the flames. That's he's wearing lederhosen? You're kind of glossing over that part. Why was he wearing lederhosen? Their, their mom is from Holland. Okay. And so they, uh, it was, if they're, they're Dutch, I don't know. They're, they're odd ducks. Was he wearing the wooden clogs It was a Halloween too? party though, so. Okay. <laughs> that is horrifying though. Yeah, so he basically blows up his entire life. Just, you know, gets rid of his, his family blows up every possession he has, you know, just just getting rid of anything that Leo can possibly take away from him. He's getting to it before Leo has the chance to. So Josh, what do you think as we get to this final sequence here? This is what I think is um, a little extreme on his part, because, I mean, not to, we're getting here, we're, we're hurtling towards the ending, but... If he is successful in his mission, there's no more Leo going to be there to threaten his life or his belongings or his loved ones. So it's a great symbol, like it's a real uh, scorched earth policy, like you can't take anything from me. Ha ha, I've, I've done it all. I've taken it from, from myself. There's nothing left. It, I don't care about anything more than burning you to the ground. Uh but also, where is he going to sleep at the end of the night? When, <laughs> like in his car, he, that's the only he thing has left. to. Yeah, <laughs> like the the next day, all those guys who work for him at the car dealership are going to be like, "What the shit? This is what our Del- job Del- Del- is going to show up and be like, what? what? Yes. I don't have a job here anymore. I have to go back to improv comedy. That doesn't pay.'" <laughs> I was going to say maybe there was some kind of insurance payoff, except I'm pretty sure by the time his house and both businesses all burn within an hour of each other, (laughs) they might suspect arson. That's suspicious. So here's my take on it. I don't think he is expecting to survive this. I don't think I think he is surprised that he survives this. I think he just did. This is a suicide mission, basically. And if he were to die like he thinks he is, then they would go after his family and everything. So he's just, you know, taking care of that before. I didn't remember how this ended. And I thought for sure he was going to his his death march here. Um, Have you ever hung out with your boss and just been chilling with him as he reads the newspaper and you're eating ice cream? And then I go (laughs) get a glass of milk and I ask him, hey, you want some milk? These are such little cozy criminals. <laughs> I haven't had I haven't had enough dairy with this ice cream. I need to wash it down with a glass of milk. 
in like the most you know domestic household you've ever seen like you know like i feel like a lot of like criminals are given like super modernistic houses this is just like your grandma's house i know those floral plant love seats felt so grandma yeah oh there's even a sign in the kitchen that says uh when you know life gives you lemon make lemonade i wonder if that was uh, <laughs> if that was leo's choice or his wife so frank smacks the dude the guard with the with the refrigerator door and pistol whips him not once but twice in the back of the head and then this scene here this movie hasn't had much silence so the fact that michael mann cuts all of the score and we're just silently creeping along this house and then you see that uh leo's not on the couch anymore and the the, the newspapers are thrown everywhere so leo's somewhere with a gun and then how it ends with the big fucking music cue on the shots to Leo's chest. Oh, man, it's, it's so cool. It's so satisfying to get that gigantic release of the Tangerine Dream. goes to slow-mo as, you know, Leo just dramatically goes backwards. Also, a good squib work here for Leo. The That arc of blood that comes out of him and, like, paints the wall, uh, I really like that. And I'm like, you can't, you can't plan for that because it's just an explosion that propels the blood. I don't think you could ask for it but the way that it looks is so cool and it's just so very like artistic and fits the moment so well. I think it's like, just like Jim Belushi's death, like is savage and horrifying. This is a little more elegant and it, I don't know. It feels like an old man getting shot. (laughs) (laughs) So elegant. (laughs) Frank makes his way outside, and this is where we get Dennis Farina showing up, and Frank gets hit with the shotgun and then shoots Farina, and this is where I read that uh, uh, Farina kind of gets Dark souls where he had the boss down to one hit, and then the boss pulls some real cheap shit and ends up killing him. <laughs> the uh, way these guys trade shots also, I'm like... That's it's revealed that James Kahn is wearing a vest, but mm-hmm. Farina just gets shot and then keeps shooting. <laughs> like you're like, no, Farina's a real tough bastard. Well, he's Dennis Farina. This is true. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you guys know Dennis Farina's background, right? I don't think we talked about that. Oh, we didn't. No, go into it, Kevin. Yeah, well, he uh, before this movie, he was a detective for the Chicago police for 20 years. And he was hired on this as like a consultant for the police. And of course, Michael Mann just, you know, loved his look so much. He's like, all right, you're in the movie now. And then he basically, Michael Mann is responsible for Dennis Farina's entire career. Because he then made the, the show, I think, Crime Story, um, mm-hmm. which is like a, a show starring Dennis Farina. So if... Michael Mann did not come along. Dennis Reno probably would have, you know, retired, you know, after whatever, 30 years as a cop and, you know, lived a quiet life other than being, you know, 
Do you guys have a favorite Farina? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> Midnight Run. Midnight Run, for sure. Yeah. He's awesome in that. Snatch for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, sit down and shut up, you big, bald fuck. <laughs> that's, that's the definitive Farina line. So what do you think of this action sequence? I like it a lot, but I feel like if it has one flaw, I feel like man has not quite gotten action sequences to the level that he will have gotten them in like heat like it's a little clunky yeah i could see that it's you don't quite have like the line of the sight lines and the fact that the henchmen aren't behind cover or anything but they're just doing that movie thing where you just walk out in the open towards someone as you're shooting at them but uh there's that shot of um con reloading it's such a simple thing oh, of him yeah. dumping the clip and putting another one in. But I was just like, oh, that's, that's, that's heat all the way through right there. That's like everything that's in heat is just all that gun shit. Yeah, a lot of the action feels a little bit like an old Western where it is kind mm-hmm. of like, here's the shooting gallery kind of thing. Um, it doesn't have the fluidity, fluidity that his later stuff will have. Uh, and you see it still in Manhunter, too, towards the end with the the staginess kind of of that action set piece um i feel like it's there's a definite step uh step up between this that and then into heat that you could follow for sure this movie ends on just such a huge note as he walks away into not the sunset but just into the darkness and tangerine dream is now cranked up full blast and this for just like rocking like a holy fuck kind of vibe through this thing to the credits and then you get that the title card again which for some reason was just very satisfying to get that thief card again yeah yeah i loved getting that little um and i looked there there was a company that made a tangerine dream uh thief t-shirt like thief soundtrack score t-shirt a while back um and I've looked for it again, but I guess they just did a limited printing of it. But it's got that badass logo and then the track listing on the back. And uh, I'm hungering for that shirt now. So, yeah. Then it just sort of ends with him walking off. Presumably, I don't know what kind of life he's going to be leading, but he blew everything up and chased his wife and kid away. <laughs> I don't know. It's not a really happy ending. Yeah, it, it, it feels like such a badass ending until you think about what's actually happened to this guy's life. Yeah. And then it's just kind of a sad ending. Yeah. Those cops are going to be coming back from Des Moines. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to be pissed. Uh-huh. So, Kevin, this was, uh, this was your choice of movie. Yeah. I'm, I, I really dug it. I'm glad that you brought it here. Um, what would you rate this on a five-star scale? Oh, five stars. Absolutely. That is what I have it rated on Letterboxd, and I stand by it. I'm so close to you. I, I, I'm a four and a half on this one. I just, I think whatever heat has that this doesn't is that little half star that's tacked on to this. And it's, I was just going to say that, I'm sorry, the possible that the Chicago stuff just gives it that extra half star for me too, you know? Uh, I think there can be multiple five-star Michael Mann movies, and this is one of them. Yeah. It's great. All right. Well, there you go. Let's, uh, let's take a break. Mm-hmm. 
would you like to introduce the second movie? Oh, yes. Hang on, let me pull up my... Okay. And welcome back from... I uh, hope everyone had a very, very productive, nice, relaxing break there. Uh, <laughs> next, we're going to be talking about 2011's Drive from Nicholas Windig Refn, starring uh, Ryan Gosling and Carrie Mulligan, uh, Ron Perlman. My This is my introduction to Oscar Isaac whom I now love. Uh, and this was based on a book. Did you guys realize that uh, at any point that this is based on a book? I had no idea. I noticed in the opening credits that it was based on a book. I was like, oh, it's based on a book. So that was my extent of knowing it was based on a book. Um, I found a copy of this uh, at, I think, like a Goodwill or something shortly after the movie came out and read it. I remember hardly anything about the book, but it's not the same as the movie. Um, But it's the same, you know, the concept of a stunt driver who also drives for mobsters. I think that's the basic through line that keeps working. I was curious what the story was. Also, Josh, we're in book club together. Did you get heavy vibes of uh, Blacktop Wasteland? Or rather the other way around, but yes. Yes, Blacktop Wasteland gave me heavy drive vibes in the best way, I would say. Yeah. Um, What's your guys' history with Nicholas here? Because I've seen a ton of his shit. I went on a... I was working at Hollywood Video. I worked there for about six weeks in my early 20s. And I saw the the cover for Pusher. And it kind of looked like... De Niro and Taxi Driver on the cover. So I was like, sure, I'll give that a shot. And that's a whole trilogy about just drug running in Denmark. And they're, they're really good movies. And that's where Mads Mikkelsen kind of got his start. Uh, there's one called Bleeder, which is super dark. Uh, Valhalla Rising is like a Viking minimalist movie starring Mads Mikkelsen uh, with some really visceral violence. And almost no dialogue whatsoever. And then I think he really hit it big with Bronson, the the Tom Hardy movie. Mm-hmm. The yeah. only movie of his I've seen that I did not like was Only God Forgives. I thought that movie sucked. That's one I have um, not seen. I think this is the first Drive movie I saw. Or I mean, this is the first uh, Drive was the first Nicholas Ren- Wending Refn. Am I getting that right? And then I went back and I saw, I think I saw all three of the pushers. I'm purposely not saying his name. (laughs) Nicholas Wingdings Refn, is that correct? (laughs) Wingdings, yeah, his name is just a a house, a finger pointing, and then a flag. Yes. (laughs) So I went back and watched, I think I saw all three of the pusher movies. I saw Bronson, I saw Valhalla Rising, did not see Only God Forgives. Um, I heard that one was not great, though I, I think I want to go back and watch it. Um, and then I did see Neon Demon. You should watch Only God Forgives if you dig yeah. Refn just to see what it's like. What's Neon Demon like? Um, it's very weird. It's kind of his version of a horror movie. Um, I don't know if I loved it or not. Like, I, it's one of those movies where I sort of, I'm sort of conflicted. It stars, I think. Uh, 
It's Dakota, one of the Fanning sisters. Um, not Dakota. Mm-hmm. Who's the other one? Uh, uh, L. 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 Fanning, yes. As like a model in L.A. She's like new on the scene. And it's just, you know, very gross and, and weird. Um, so I didn't love it, but it's, it's worth a watch. That kind of sounds like Starry Eyes. Did you see that one? No. Which is just... It's, it's it's like it's a horror movie combined with a young actress trying to make her break in Hollywood and yeah. basically has to like sign away her soul essentially to a, the devil in order to get to make her break and to okay. get her roles. Yeah, sounds kind of like that. I don't know. Has he made anything since then? I don't know. I, I, I feel like I've fallen sort of off. The... No, um, he's done a TV show. Uh, since then um oh and i just started watching it too uh too old to die young yes i haven't heard of it there's 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 so many tv shows it's i don't i don't even know how a tv show finds an audience these days (laughs) yeah it's nearly impossible i would say well much smaller audience i watched a show with billy zane and steve zahn called old dogs on netflix or no, sorry, on Amazon. And I think I'm the only person that ever watched it. <laughs> I've never heard a single person mention the show even existing. So. I've never even heard of it until hey, now. listeners, if you're out there, hit, hit me up if you've seen Old Dogs. Just silence. Yeah, no, no one. This is, yeah, the, everyone who has seen it has already spoken up. <laughs> Which is you. So... <laughs> So drive again. We're starting right off with the font. This pink yes. font tells you again so much about what this movie is and what it's gonna be. And then this intro, this intro is kind of a curveball because this sets this movie up to be your typical heist driver kind of movie. And after this intro sequence, everything kind of gets thrown out the window. Um. How do you mean? Because normally I would think that it would be... There's a lot more downtime in between jobs. We're not, we're not focusing on his criminal life growing. We're focusing on the, the neighbor woman and his relationship with his friend and this whole side story with Albert Brooks and the stock car. And it's not until Oscar Isaac comes back that we kind of get back into the criminal life of things. And even then he's not doing it as a job at that point. He's doing it as I don't know, not even a friend, like a family protector. Mm, okay. I see what you mean now. So he doesn't it's not it, it I don't it's not the same motivation of like increasing your score and working with new crews and then planning the next heist and stuff. It 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 kind of skips those beats and goes more about his personal life and story and what kind of a weird fucking incel this guy is or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there is really only one traditional, like that opening sequence where he is driving. That's the only time where it is a normal job for him, where he is hired by these people for money to, you know, drive them, you know, away from a crime. That's the only time you really see that. So I, I see what you mean there. But everything he, else is. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but he sets the world up so precisely in those first, the first seconds, right? The, um, I'm your driver. You have me for five minutes. I do whatever in that five minutes, either minute, you know, either side of that. It's not my concern. Like he lays out the rules. We don't have to see him do the world or like enter that world a bunch of times because of the way uh, that it's set up so precisely right there at the right from the top. I love the rules. There's a hundred thousand streets in this city. You don't need to know the route. You give me a time and a place. I give you a five minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours. No matter what. Anything happens a minute either side of that and you're on your own. Do you understand? Good. And you won't be able to reach me on this phone again. The little detail of having the the basketball game on his TV and then the first time going through this, you... I was thinking that this guy is just so nonchalant about this job and about his skill that he's just chilling, listening to the basketball game as he's doing this job. And so the fact that it then turns out that he's had this plan the whole time to use that as his escape route is a really clever little twist. So the first time I saw this movie was um, a, a work print that did not have all of the basketball commentary and did not have the basketball on the TV. Uh, it wasn't comped in yet. So it was really? a little confusing. <laughs> I didn't quite get it the first time I watched it uh, because of that. So you see him turning up the volume on his radio and just nothing happens. I think it was only the police scanner stuff. Like it didn't quite all add up. I don't know if I still have that copy anywhere, but that would be interesting to compare it. Did it have the uh, music in it? I think it did have the music or. Okay. I don't remember. I, I distinctly remember the. Uh, the basketball game and the um, some of the blood effects not being finished. Some of the digital gore was not in there, which is incredibly shocking when you see it now. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brutal. Uh, so Cranston has kitted out the most popular car in California, Chevy Impala. Um, he picks up the two guys, or he shows up at the place where they're going to do the heist. And um, they go in. Have you guys ever played Payday? Payday 2 with the heist? Those yes. Games? No. Those games nail the feeling of tension that this scene gets. Where when one guy makes it back to the car. And you're sitting there waiting for the next guy. He's like, come on, come on. Where the fuck is he? Hurry up. Those games. It's all about how greedy you want to get. Do you want to keep grabbing more bags of money? Or do you want to start to get out of there? Get out of that bank? And it's all of that. So this tension. And this happens twice in this movie. The tension of sitting in the car waiting for the last person to walk out of the heist building is, like, it has me, like, my hands are clenched up as I'm watching this. Just oh, yeah. this whole, the structure of this opening, um, 
where the tension goes from what is he doing to these guys have like they fire a shot to open up the the lock on this door it's it's idiotic right what are you do guys what are you doing come on james con wouldn't do that no like you use that pry bar with the screw on the end of it to pop that cylinder out right like be a little more <laughs> slick choose choose your spots here dudes yeah that's the issue with just driving is that you don't know what idiots you are going to have to you know do this heist with that so once they both get back in I the scene now where we're playing hide and seek with the police listening to the scanner and then when they stop at the intersection and the cop is across from them and they hear the cop say I think I got eyes on the car ah, it's it's just all these chess pieces are set up so wonderfully it feels very Michael Mann-ish mm-hmm. and the the attention to detail I think it plays out through the course of it because you see how uh how well planned ryan gosling's part of it is and how ready for everything he is like even though these guys don't know what's going on he doesn't clue them into anything he just does it he doesn't talk them through it. he doesn't hold their hands he is just going ahead with the plan that's gonna save all of them no matter what he doesn't even tell them to get out of the car at the end <laughs> He just gets out and bails and is just like, see ya. I, I, was, yeah, I was thinking, I was a little worried about them because the cops are going into that parking lot. I'm like, they might be caught right now. And Ryan Gosling is <laughs> not very concerned about that. Yeah, so it might not, not have ended show. very well for them. You know what? I never, I never thought about the fact that those guys might rat on him. That, like, that should be a concern. Yeah, this guy in a scorpion jacket really fucked us over. <laughs> next scene we got is gosling at work uh he never gets a name in this the closest we get is brian cranston calling him pal basically mm-hmm. uh it's credited as so the driver ha- which, that this shot the shot where he's in the cop uniform and it's more specifically the shot where we see a bald actor in a mirror and then we go behind the mirror to see gosling putting on that bald man's face mm-hmm. was unsettling in a way that i was not anticipating yeah that prosthetic face is is very freaky and it will come back but <laughs> this was another thing i had forgotten since my theatrical viewing was this prosthetic face and jesus christ that shot when he's looking inside the pizza shop oh my god <laughs> that's nightmare stuff um so we jump cut, he's met his neighbor before, her car is broken down, and so it jump cuts from the parking lot to the kid just staring daggers at him in the elevator. Uh, I liked this kid. He's not given a ton of dialogue, which I think is smart, but I did like his act, his performance. Little Benicio. And uh, up next, we got Albert Brooks. What do you know Albert Brooks from? He's Mel Brooks' brother, correct? No. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) (laughs) He's someone's brother. (laughs) Maybe. He's Super Dave Osborne's brother. Bob Bob Einstein. Yes. Bob Einstein. Oh, that's right. Because because Albert Brooks' real name is Albert Einstein. And he cannot enter Uh, Hollywood with that that name. That's amazing. (laughs) 
Oh so I think I, I mostly know him for broadcast news. Um, he's he's great in that. Is he he's is he in Taxi Driver? Is that the same guy? Yes, he, yes, he is. He is. Okay. Who is he in Taxi Driver though? He works in the um, uh, Emperor or not Emperor, <laughs> uh, the Mayor Palatine's office along with Sybil Shepherd. Yeah, he's Sybil Shepherd's coworker. But he's not the guy that's is he's the guy that's trying to date Sybil Shepherd. Yes, kinda. Yeah, really. I wow. Yeah, he, I think he's I saw him on in the scout at, at some point. Um, have you uh, ever seen any of 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 his movies? Um, I've never seen Broadcast News. By the way, I, I, that's one I think a ton of people have seen. Right? Yeah. It's a great movie. Uh, yeah. One of my one of my favorites of his is Modern Romance, um, which has some great Los Angeles based humor in it. Um, very much like the single guy or the lonely guy, rather the Steve Martin uh, film. I just compared mm-hmm. a film to another film you haven't seen. That's great. That's good for me. <laughs> I'm going to do some visual jokes next next on the podcast. I'm looking at his director's filmography. Have not seen anything. So I mostly know him for broadcast news, taxi driver, and now this. Okay. So does Brooks in this give you Prosky vibes? As far as initially being introduced as a boss guy who seems a little homely and friendly and down to earth. And by the end of the movie, he's fucking terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I do think he, he is initially a little even more sinister than Prosky presents in Thief. Like, I think you can always tell he's, you know, there's something a little hard underneath, like the little speech he gives to uh, the driver when uh, uh, they they first get introduced. And, you know, he basically gives the story of how uh, Brian Cranston's character uh, had his pelvis broken like there's like an underlying threat in that story yeah for sure uh by it was broken by nino yeah by ron perlman right yeah or I th- yeah. and it's just they just said that was um what was the how how was that debt how did that debt happen that shannon got himself into do they go over that ever, those details? They kind of did. He said that uh, Shannon would overcharge him for his services, and then he introduced him to some friends of Nino, and they didn't go for the overcharging bit, quote-unquote, so they broke his pelvis. That's right. Um, I also find it weird that Albert Brooks's character is named Bernie Rose, uh, which Bernard Rose is the guy who directed Candyman. <laughs> Oh yeah, like yeah, <laughs> just weird. Like, like that's a dude's name. That's an actual guy. We know that guy. I mean, you know, I I did like the line when he goes to shake Gosling's hand at the racetrack. Gosling says, "My hands are a little dirty," and Brooks says, "So are mine." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then Cranston holds out his hand to Albert Brooks, who won't shake his hand, and. <laughs> That's a little foreshadowing to some bummer stuff that happens later. Yes. For sure. Um, so this leads us to 
Carrie Mulligan who shows up at the shop, and I don't know what I know her from. Oh, I did see Promising Young Woman. Oh, I still haven't okay. seen it. It's supposed to be very good. She's in Shame. Isn't she? Was she in um, Dawson's Creek and whatnot? Or am I thinking of a different person? No. No, you're no. conflating her with, um, uh, oh, Melissa, not Melissa. Um, why am I now blanking? I can picture her. They both had the same haircut for a while, and they were both blonde yeah. and very pixie-ish looking. Michelle. Michelle Williams is who you're conflating her with. That's her. Yeah. Melissa Etheridge. There we go. <laughs> Melissa Etheridge. Got it. Um, I think I first saw her in, well, I first saw her in Pride and Prejudice, but I didn't really realize that was her. Um, she made an impression in Never Let Me Go, though. Oh. Uh, I love that movie. Oh, and she was in Inside Lou and Davis. Yes. She's great in that, too. Oh, my gosh. Such a different character in that one. Apparently, she's in Public Enemies. I don't remember in that, though. I barely remember that movie. Which is kind of weird. She was in Brothers. Sean, haven't you seen Brothers? Nope. Huh. Nope. I haven't seen hardly anything of hers. Okay. So, her name's Irene in this one. And, um... I'm a little worried about her taste in men. <laughs> That's a theme for these because two movies. <sighs> yes. Her husband's in prison. People end up in prison all the time who are not bad people. So that's sure. not my main judgment. But the fact that she's on a second date with a guy who's completely silent and who wears a white jacket with a scorpion on the back. If that's not a red flag, I don't know what is Irene. I mean, Ryan Gosling <laughs> is very good looking. I'll give him that. But it, it is a little disconcerting that he like shows zero emotion at any point during their conversations. <laughs> and doesn't speak that much either. He just sort of stares at her. And then as every once in a while gets kind of a, a like an absent-minded smile that yeah. kind of crosses his face when he watches the kid do something. But... <laughs> <laughs> I would I I would just be slightly terrified of this person. For good reason too. Because he's terrifying ultimately. Yeah, he does not seem to have the personality that matches that jacket either. Like you'd think somebody with like a big bold personality would have a scorpion jacket. Doesn't I don't yeah, interesting fashion choice for him. So, the jacket there's they mention it later with the whole scorpion on the back of a frog and then the scorpion stings it as it swims across the river and this jacket is iconic but that's also a little on the nose i, I i'm not quite sure how i feel about this it's it's a little obvious i think i love it <laughs> um, i think it is one of those things that is talked about so much for this movie and i think that is for a reason i think it's 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 ridiculous but it is it's pretty cool like, if I had the guts, I would totally wear a scorpion jacket. I I think I would, I love to imagine how many guys thought they could pull off something like this after seeing this movie, and how many awful jackets are in the dump now because of this. <laughs> I think uh, almost as iconic is the fact that he takes off his scorpion jacket and has a regular jean jacket on underneath. 
that he wears throughout <laughs> his normal life. Uh, I love that. Just like that's that is some prep. I, I've never spent a lot of time in L.A. to be that worried about the weather. Is this a thing where you might need multiple jackets in a day? Uh, I mean, L.A. is essentially a desert city. So uh-huh. while it might be hot the day, it can get really cold at night, too. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, this date, one thing that struck me about this date, he, uh, he does the same move I used to do. I used to hold my girlfriend's hand on the stick shift. Oh, oh yeah. It's a good move. If yeah. you're out there and you have a manual car... It's a good move. You should try it sometime. I was kind of hoping you were going to say you take them into the L.A. River and just drive around to romantic electronic music. Yeah, can you can you do that? Movies make it seem like anyone can just just drive the L.A. River all the time. Like it just happens so often. This is like the fifth movie that we've done where somebody's been in the L.A. River. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And you haven't even done live and die in L.A. yet. Live and die in L.A. Yeah. Um. So. The story with Albert Brooks and Brian Cranston. Cranston wants to build a stock car because they can make a lot of money on it with Gosling driving. And Albert Brooks was a movie producer, and now he's just kind of an overall scummy guy. Um, I I really liked the line as Gosling is sitting there watching a cartoon with the kid, and he asks the kid, "Are there no good sharks?" And the kid says, "No, just look at him. He's not a good guy." Yeah. I feel like that's like, Mom, are you hearing this? Just look at him. He's not a good guy. Uh, After this, this is where Carrie Mulligan learns that her husband is getting out of prison and will be home within the next week. And then we get the the welcome home party. What do you think of Oscar Isaac overall? And his character arc surprised me because they were setting him up to be the jealous, vengeful, like, crazed lover kind of thing but then that never quite plays out no okay so my my first podcast that i did with my now wife which has a lot of portent for you and i sean that means in about a decade we might find ourselves in a situation (laughs) but if we move to utah and utah becomes progressive about gay marriage it could happen Okay, it is legal in all over the United States now, Sean. <laughs> no, but the multiple marriage thing. Oh, that, yes. Only only in Utah can you have <laughs> poly marriages, or at least one of the only states, right? Um, but the the impetus for me doing a podcast is this scene. I wanted to talk to somebody about this specific scene, the the party scene, uh, and the duality the push and pull between their apartment. It's so full of life, Irene and standards. If there's all these friends, there's all these people that have come out of the woodwork and it's just, it's something that you would aspire to. And then you see driver's apartment and there's nothing in it. He's in there with one cold light as he's working on a carburetor or something, right? Or, uh, Yeah. Let's let's call it carburetor. It's not. It's, sure. I think it's uh, no, okay. I don't know. But then the shot of them outside standing in the hallway looking at each other, right? And they're standing. You can hear the muffled party from behind 
Irene's door and they just say, hey. And they stand there and they share this moment and they kind of smile. And then Standard comes through the door behind her and she flinches. But she keeps Mm -hmm. eye contact with him for as long as she can. It's like she's living in this fantasy world. And I understand that she has built Ryan Gosling up to be something that he's not and can never be, which is a real human being. Uh, and a real because hero. He, yeah. And a real hero. <laughs> he's lacking those parts. Very and good. <laughs> well played. Go team. Uh, and that moment when Oscar Isaac comes out and then confronts him just that swing in the the shot composition is so well done and so subtle and so beautifully handled that I think it's like there's moments that I think are the keys to movies. And this is like the emotional key to this movie where you get all these interesting power dynamics happening. And this is what really pushes forth the last portion of this film. She makes a joke that's unsettling. She says, sorry about the noise. He jokes, I was going to call the cops. Mm-hmm. And she jokes back, I wish you would. Mm-hmm. Given the context, that's not funny. That's, uh, I, I'm nervous about what's going on here. Just what, that she wants her husband to be taken back? So as, Os- as Oscar Isaac confronts him, I'm expecting here for Os- him to say, baby, take the kid and go inside. Mm-hmm. I need to talk to him. But instead, he takes the kid and says, mom needs to talk to her friend. Mm-hmm. And So th- that one really threw me for a loop. Yeah. O- Oscar Isaac is a lot more sympathetic than you would think that character would be in this movie. Like, yeah, you would expect him to be the jealous type and then, you know, like threaten Ryan Gosling or something like that. But like from the speech that he makes in the party, he seems like, you know, a decent person just trying to get his life back on track. And then even this scene, which is the most, you know, like passive aggressive he gets with Ryan Gosling or the driver, you know, just, you know, maybe a few glances here and there. And it's really not even that bad. No, the the most confrontational he gets is he says, I heard you've been hanging around a lot, helping out around the house. And Gosling just says, yeah. And I, I just it teeters on that line where I, I, I can't tell where Oscar's coming from. And I, I think it's a really great performance. And Josh, we've seen him in um, Annihilation. He's amazing in that movie. We haven't talked Ex Machina yet, but I think he's excellent in that as well. Um, overall, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of his. I was looking at his IMDb page, and this is definitely the first thing that I would have ever seen him in, too. And he, he does, like, leave an immediate impression. Did you guys notice that Gosling's apartment number is 405? No. Which is the one of the two main freeways that go through Los Angeles, is the 5 and the 405. Oh, okay. Just a little, a little nod to the Southern California setting. Um... I just the other day realized that uh, Oscar Isaac is in the movie Che. Um, it, you barely see him, and like he would not make an impression in the movie at all because of the way that movie is shot. 
Um, but now it's distracting because you're like, oh, that bit player is Oscar Isaac. <laughs> that that little interpreter who stands in the background is a famous man. It's kind of like Band of Brothers, where you see like Michael Fassbender in like this tiny little role, and you're like, oh, that's Michael Fassbender. Yes, James McAvoy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was. Yeah, he was in there was too. Band yeah. of Brothers. Um, yeah. Uh, so, what do you think of the scene where? <laughs> The guy from a previous job sidles up next to him at the diner. (laughs) And this is just like telegraphing the psychopath part of the driver, too. We're starting to get little little breadcrumbs trickled in this movie of like, this guy might not be sane. He might have serious violent demons lurking underneath there. But it walks that line, right, of... He could just be an uber professional who is like, no, you don't talk shit to me outside of the context of the job. You know, like, we are yeah. we are not friends. We're not anything apart from when we work together. And we will never work together again now that you've approached me in, in real life. I like that that guy's response was just like, okay, man, nice to see you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna walk away now and uh you have a good one. <laughs> when he gets back, this is where we find uh he sees the two gangsters walking in the garage and Oscar Isaac has had the shit beaten out of him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well his son watched is you know what is it, Benicio is like around the corner. That's pretty mm. um horrifying. Yeah, and they find out that they gave the kid a bullet Yeah, told him not to lose it. Like, Ugh. Jesus Christ, guys. Pretty brutal makeup on Oscar Isaac, too. He looks like he really got the, the shit kicked out of him. Uh, so we find out his backstory is he was in prison and he got protection from them. And so he owes them protection money. And so they want him to rob the, the pawn shop. And um, yeah, so this is where I think the movie really takes like a 90 degree turn where I was anticipating this to be a, a Gosling versus Isaac vehicle. I was not anticipating these two to then work together on a score. And especially not in this way, like that um, Gosling is really stepping up to like be the caretaker, big brother kind of character for, because you expect standard to be pushing against him and antagonizing him not for him to be like looking out for the the guy who you think is going to be the bully towards him that's a really interesting turn uh so yeah we're going to make our way to the uh, the pawn shop now and park out front the the woman and Oscar Isaac go in and what what you, what what was your response when that car pulled up with the blacked out windows <laughs> Because all I thought was just, oh, fuck. Yeah. It's like, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> it's just dread, like right in your gut. Yeah, it's fairly obvious the way it's shot. And it just, yeah, just black car pulls into frame. So this coming up is one of the most effective jump scares that has gotten me in a long time. Oscar Isaac walking out of this place and then one bullet ripping through his neck. It's just something about that timing with how loud that gunshot was in the mix. 
I physically jumped in my couch this afternoon. <laughs> That's I would love to see that. So, yeah, this movie, I think, like the sound design is incredible. Like from the the chase scenes and the gunshots and everything, I think this movie really like uh, lives in the sound design. Like, as it makes uh, like in that opening scene, it's a what a Chevy Impala. It does not look like an impressive car, but with like the rumble that you hear from the whatever three hundred horsepower engine that gets thrown in there, it feels like a super fast car. And that's, I think, all just you know all that sound. It is pretty funny to be in a badass souped up Chevy Impala. <laughs> <laughs> those those feel like an oxymoron. Yeah. The the moment after Standard gets shot, where you see, I'm going to do a visual thing, Sean. Be sure to point yeah. it out. You see, uh, see, Josh has both fingers, both fingers, all of his hands. <laughs> both, both of his two fingers. Josh has been in a horrible accident. <laughs> all right, Josh has his hands up to the camera, and... like they're on a steering wheel. Yeah, ten and two and, for safety. And you see when Standard gets shot, driver like. Like stand like he's gonna reach for the door, like he's gonna get out. His his code is that he does not help, that he does not get involved. And when he sees Standard get shot, his impetus, the thing that pushes him, is to go help, like to become part of it. And I just think that's like this little character moment where he breaks for a second, and I think it's really interesting. It's just a really cool little choice. Yeah, it's the idea like he's thinking he might be able to run. And I, I do think it's because it's that kid's dad is why I think he wants to save him. Totally. Not for, that's why he would be willing to break those rules. But the sound design again, when those two or three bullets go through Oscar's chest and we get the squibs, it's, it's like it, it, this movie is shockingly violent, especially in the second half here. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. Something about winding reference, winding reference direction. Josh, I would put this around, around Blue Ruin on a scale of visceral violence that I think is done remarkably well. Um, but we don't get anybody actually vomiting in this movie, unlike Blue Ruin. So point it's a shame. Point goes to Blue Ruin. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a positive that there is actual vomiting. Okay, just. Making sure. So Kevin, what'd you think of this car chase uh, this going is, through the hills of Los Angeles? I think this is my favorite car chase of the movie. I, the opening sequence was great, but like just the, you know, cat and mouse aspect of this was great. And going back to the sound design, just like the engines, you really hear those engines just sounds super beefy. This looks really dangerous. I did. I didn't even really understand the move that he pulls, where he whips the car around so that he's going backwards. Yeah. So that way, later, he can make a sharp turn that the other car can't make. I. I, I don't know. Was, I guess I just sort of accepted it. Josh, again, this was straight out of Blacktop Wasteland. Yes. Where he is on some next level Flipping shit. Flipping the car around backwards. Mm-hmm. Like I don't even know if that also, move is possible and still maintain speed, you know, so that the car just doesn't, you know, crash right into you. But I accept it. 
Right. Because you would think a, a car would redline at like 35 miles per hour in reverse just yeah. due to the gearing. But it's a movie. You gotta, you gotta have fun with it. Go backwards <laughs> once in a while, right? Yeah. <laughs> I saw an IMDb trivia that uh, Nicholas Winding Refn does not drive, has never driven. He has pa- failed his, his li- uh, license exam like eight times. <laughs> so that might be just, you know, him not exactly knowing everything, too. <laughs> <laughs> so they're gonna make their way to the to the motel and when they find out that the pawn shop owner reported that it was a lone gunman and nothing was stolen uh-oh that's bad news yeah which once again i mean i guess spoilers for blacktop wasteland but it's the same play right of the mob denying that as much shit is there as really should be there and you know you know you're in trouble um so this is where driver really shows what a fucking crazy psychopath he is as he slaps this woman and then pins her to the bed <sighs> and explicitly threatens violence upon her that did seem a little soon. Like, he didn't know for sure that she was in on it, right? Like, he did. I don't know if he needed to... Yeah, that was a little rough. I mean... <sighs> I think it was a good choice because we don't want him to be right to do this. Yeah. I think, it. you know, it's you want him to be in the wrong. Right. Yeah. So I think it's more interesting to have our who we we've thought this whole time is our protagonist. And now all of a sudden it's like, uh, dude, let's, let's not be hitting women. Right, bud. <laughs> but what if she's double crossing? What it like she got, she got Benicio's dad killed. I know she, she, she got that kid's dad killed. I know. So I, I think it's great because it's so conflicting mm-hmm. that, it's clearly the wrong thing, but the life of crime and the stakes are so high that it's the scale of what's right and acceptable is just out the window. This is just a different world altogether. Yeah. Uh, I also appreciate the fact that in this scene, it is Ryan Gosling and Christina Hendricks. You have two of the most beautiful people in Hollywood, like, at each other's throats for a second and it's kind of hot like you step back from it and you're like this is the fantasy version of this shit like these are both clean well-groomed people who are attractive and at the top of their game like this is not what this would look like in the real world now the real world this would be sweaty and cockroach filled motel and lots of cigarettes i feel that's just gross. This whole section reminds me a lot of um, Grand Theft Auto V, like all the desert stuff, and with the um, I don't remember what the the gross character's name is. Uh, Trevor. Yes, Tre- <laughs> thank you, Trevor. Uh, Trevor's character. That's who this would be in in real life. I I feel like you'd much more wind up with a Trevor than a driver. Um. So. We're about to see, this is uh, probably a top five head explosion for me, up there with Scanners and 
the original Maniac, this this is on another level what happens to Christina Hendricks' head. Mm-hmm. It's gone. Yeah. I remember seeing this in theaters and just being shocked. This is that brutal violence you were talking about. Because you realize it's about two seconds before it happens that something is going to happen. And then you just see the guy with the shotgun outside the window. And then just two seconds later, it's just completely blown away. And the fact that it's a shotgun, of all things, oh, yeah. is just... Oof. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, so Gosling throws the, the mattress on the front door to block it. Guy comes in. Uh, beats the shit out of the guy, stabs him through the neck with uh, the curtain rod, takes a shotgun and blasts the other guy. And this moment where his face is covered in blood, and he doesn't... He seems a little stunned, but he doesn't seem emotional about this, or very phased by it. Just a little surprised is all. It's He just takes a beat and kind of assesses what's going on, and it's like it seems like fear is there for a second. And then he just does what he has to do, which once again, I don't know if these guys, they have no modulation, right? Both driver and Frank, it's like zero or a hundred. The rheostat has no middle on the dial. There's no middle sliders on these boys. They just go insane. That's the only level they have. Once you kick them off, shit is going to happen. So how does he find out? We're looking for we're looking for the gangster guy. He figures out his name um, from Christina Hendricks. Oh, that's right. He finds he figures out his name from her. And so now he's going to the, the strip club, right? Yeah, this is a fun scene. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, what do you think of the strip club invasion? Um. I love how everything is presented very matter-of-factly. Like, you have two versions of strip club scenes. One where they show you a whole lot of naked women before the guy ever walks in, right? There's a lot of gyrating and a lot of, like, sexualizing of them. Then there's things like this, where there's naked women there, but it's because they work there. And, (laughs) And we're not, like, treated to... I think of the the beginning of uh what was it Planet Terror uh where there's the the pole dance sequence or from Dust Till Dawn Robert Rodriguez mm-hmm. has a lot of <laughs> has a lot of these uh <laughs> this is super interesting because the women are there but it's just their job like it's just their work and the camera does not sexualize them especially um it just happens to be that this is a place where people work naked and this man enters this place and does really horrifying things to one of the bodyguards. And I like how detached these uh, women look. Like, they, they look like they have seen this multiple times before. Like, they aren't barely reacting to a man uh-huh. taking a hammer to another man and, you know, putting a bullet to his forehead and threatening to hit it into his head. And they are just sort of looking on, you know, nonplussed. Like, you know, they probably saw this a week ago. Not really that big of a deal. These women have seen some shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, have you guys seen uh, Twin Peaks Season 3? Yes. Nope. Okay. There's uh, the the showgirls 
who are in the background of some of the scenes who have a very similar vibe. They're just kind of just leaning against the wall, chewing gum as shit happens. And you're just like, God, what kind of life have these women led that this, that this does not affect them. It does not phase them at all. Did you get the feeling that Gosling didn't know what he wanted to do here? He smashes the guy's hand first and then he puts the bullet to his forehead and he's going to hammer the bullet into his forehead but then he changes his mind, and then he pries the guy's mouth open, uh-huh. and that hammer on teeth sound, uh, gross. Yeah. And then he just puts the bullet in the guy's mouth and tries to make him swallow it. I, this felt so indecisive, like he couldn't figure out how he wanted to fuck with this guy. Turns out all the ways. Also, I bet this guy would have. I bet this guy would have preferred to have been killed in this scene with a hammer to the head than how he goes. <laughs> <laughs> his death his death was the most shocking thing in this movie for me I it, 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 it like fucked me up sitting on my couch it was like oh god <laughs> Jesus Christ Like I used to have more stomach for gore I, 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 I'm losing it yeah so Albert Brooks he takes like a fork to his eye first which that part seems completely unnecessary like if you're just going to kill this guy he like later like grabs a knife and like stabs him to death but that fork thing just seemed like not necessary to what he needed to do Yeah no it wasn't but then the <laughs> knife like deep in the neck oh oh this this guy I almost said this poor guy but then I yeah <laughs> remembered a, who he is guy. Uh, so Driver calls Perlman, and he says all he wants to do is give Nino the money, so that way they can all be done and walk away from this. Um, after that, he tells Carrie Mulligan about how her, her husband was killed and doing the job. She slaps him when he suggests that she can take the money. And now we're going to get into the elevator with yeah. these two. Um, Kevin, what do you think of the lighting shift that happens and like the change in tone? When when he kisses her. Yeah, I remember this scene being very impactful in theaters, too. Like, it is one of the most, like, starting out with one of the most beautiful scenes, you know, of any movie, really. Like, the, like, it's super impressionistic, the way the lighting, you know, just sort of changes over their head. It's in slow motion. You have that sort of angelic music playing as he finally kisses her, which is something I assume he's been, you know wanting to do the entire movie um but then you know in the back of your head there's that you know guy that nino sent over which they showed that he has a gun so ryan gosling the driver knows that that's coming so it's just that that dramatic shift from super beautiful to then absolutely brutal violence is just so shocking it's 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 a romantic moment that is encapsulated by a feeling of dread. Yeah. That right after this kiss, something's going to happen. And I don't even understand the one camera angle that they go to as Driver brings this guy to the floor and then starts just stomping on his face. Like, the angle is back. It's through the wall of, of the elevator basically 
because you see driver's hand on the on the rail and it's like partway into the frame so it feels like he has kicked so hard like he's kicked he's kicking through the edge of the elevator practically and then it cuts back to Irene's face and she is she's just stunned like there's hardly any reaction she's just blinking and you see him like spitting it makes me wonder how much of the whole little sequence is fantasy and how much is reality. I was wondering if that kiss was something that was in his mind because she just slapped him. Her husband just died. She's trying to like escape with her son. And then I, I I just don't buy that. She would then be into this kiss with him Mm -hmm. after all of this that happened. I just, I'm not buying that. So I, I, for me, I think that that lighting shift was a surreal moment to show how disjointed and how fucked up this guy's brain is. That he's still he's still living in this reality. Like when he says to her, "You can take the money and run, and I can come with you, and I can take care of you." And it's like, dude, they need to get away from you. <laughs> this is. They don't need you there. You're you're a fucking terrifying mess, lunatic. And this moment where she finally sees it, and this is one of the few times in this movie where his emotions get the better of him, and we see the outburst. And the fact that he's using both of his hands on the rails to get extra leverage in these stomps, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's not just it's a stomp to make sure he's dead. It's a stomp to destroy this man's face. It's it's just a shocking moment. And the fact that he doesn't follow her when she gets off the elevator, I guess because he sees that she's terrified or something. But the fact that now his white jacket, she sees the blood on it and these red, red spots in like a Macbethian way. And he is sweating and like the way his face shakes after that. uh like, I mean, he's he's a very slender man, but he looks almost jowly the way that he shakes and like he does not look okay. He looks like a, a insane person. Mm-hmm. So after this, it uh, the elevator closes and it cuts. It shows the scorpion jacket, and then it's a jump cut to him in the car and the soundtrack for just a few seconds. Is just this big wall of just like big wall of drone. Yeah. As like the insanity and madness has taken hold. I did notice the drone coming up a a fair number of times in this movie, which is very like David, you know, going back to Twin Peaks. It's a very David Lynch sort of sound, you know, just like dread that, you know, pops up in different points of the movie. Um, Gosling finds out that Cranston kind of ratted on him by telling um, Albert Brooks that he doesn't want the money. He just wants the girl to be safe. So now... Brooks knows that the girl is the motivation. Uh, the 
the Brooks Cranston confrontation is so mm. sad and so heartbreaking and so visceral in um, the way that few things are that it makes me like makes my skin crawl up my arm when he uses that straight razor on him. The, like I'm feeling it right now and I do not like it. It's upsetting. The thing that hit me hardest about that scene was Albert Brooks like had mercy on this guy and felt bad for it. And so the way he comf- comforts him is that it's okay. It's done. It's done. That's it. That, that was it. It's over now. It's like, it's like when you give a kid their first shot before they go to kindergarten mm-hmm. and then you comfort them after and like, it's okay. It's, it's, it's fine. Now the worst is over. Oh, so sad. It's an interesting dynamic shift that Albert Brooks sort of turns out to be the muscle of the two. Uh, yeah. Uh, like Nino true. like turns away as Albert Brooks is killing the uh, Chris or, or whatever his name was. And like, yeah, he's actually the brutal one of the two, not Ron Perlman, as you you know would probably think going into the movie. Yeah, Ron Perlman only breaks hips. Yeah. That's, that's nothing in, in this world. He probably had somebody else do it, too. Uh, so drivers find Shelley's or excuse me, Shannon's body and decides to go over to Nino's pizza. Nino's having a party and how pathetic is this party? Look, <laughs> on the way there, he picks up the driver mask. And like I said before, this, this, this part, the way it's shot where there's, there's all the frosted gra- glass and the red glass and there's one clear pane of glass and you see this uncanny valley bald man approaching through that pane and then just standing there looking through the window it's so creepy it it gives me goosebumps and uh kevin like you were saying no one is having a good time except for ron perlman <laughs> in this party like i know everyone the woman looks she's, he's with is just her like rolling her eyes like this <laughs> <laughs> jesus and he's <laughs> laughing his ass off the whole time <laughs> Just some strip mall pizza place. Like, this is his domain, is this shitty pizza joint. And he's so proud of it. This change of music, the change of pace in music in this next scene, really threw me for a loop because we've had such a synthwave drone electronic soundtrack. And then they threw in something that sounded like it was from Sound of Music. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like almost operatic or something. I don't know what it is. So driver spins out Nino's car and is cool. It's like a ghost car where he rams them off the road and they don't even know what hit them. They don't even understand if a car hit them or not. That shot where it like flies through the air and lands on the beach is so cool. Like that's one of those that just from a purely visual perspective i'm like that's just a great fucking shot it's so pretty looking that i'm just like i love the destruction of the (laughs) of this car in this scene i did think at this point ron perlman nino runs and he runs away into the ocean do you think nino thought he was getting murdered by a very famous actor Why do you think he wore the mask? Is that ever really like? Is there any logical reason for him to do that? 
I don't think so. Like, is it like the the merging of the two halves of himself or something? Maybe, but it's not like there's like a, a logical reason. Like I'm trying to disguise myself. It, it like he just crashes into somebody in the middle of the road. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get the feeling that it was used to to disguise his identity, and he hasn't had problem doing violent things without the mask. No. So I I also was a little perplexed. I think it works because it's visually shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's something I can't really explain. I'd be curious to hear other people's thoughts about it. Uh so yeah, we're about to get to the, like the end end of this movie as he calls and sets up a meeting with Albert Brooks and he calls Carrie Mulligan. And this was another part that I was not sure if this was real or not, or if this was in his head, this conversation he has with her and he tells her meeting her and her son was the best thing that ever happened to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The ending of this feels a bit tax or dri- taxi driver ish. Yeah, I, I feel like it's one of those, not necessarily a litmus test, but um I've had many discussions with people who take the ending of both of those movies, Taxi Driver and this one, in completely different ways, and therefore it means completely different things to them, which boggles my mind. Like, I don't see how the ending of either one of these movies is a any kind of uh, justification or redemption for the characters, no matter if they live or die. I think when I was 17 and saw Taxi Driver for the first time, I was like, fuck yeah, Travis Bickle. <laughs> and like, and like, you figured it out and you worked through your problems. <laughs> and then the older I get and watch that movie, I'm like, wait, he he solved his mental health issues by murdering a building full of people. And now he's I don't I don't think so. There, no. <laughs> there's no yeah. way that's the ending of this movie. And like the fact that she's going to get into his cab and be like, hello, <laughs> how are you doing? It's I haven't seen you in a minute. I saw you in the papers. Like, uh, uh-uh, that's not happening. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Albert Brooks and, uh, driver have their <laughs> confrontation. They had like, I think at this point you are either all in or all out on the movie, right? Like if you don't like the movie, you, you will use this scene where they really use the metaphor, the, the scorpion and frog metaphor and make it, they, they turn the subtext into text and then turn that into the, the literal, uh, vision of what happens in the parking lot. <laughs> like he tells him, I'm going to stab you. And then is like that. He stabs him. Like that's just what it, what he does. Uh, and I think if you're not into the melodramatic, zone that this movie is giving you that you'd be all out at this point. And I know people who think it's it's dumb because they don't like the movie. And I don't know what to say to those people frankly because at this point I'm like I'm all in on this sun-soaked just uh dream of an ending that's happening. So bo- I I see both these guys as scorpions. Mm-hmm. And so there's no live and let live with a scorpion. Albert Brooks tries to tell him, like, listen, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you the truth because I'm a nice guy. You're going to have to look over the shoulder for the rest of your life. And then they get to the parking lot and both of them have knives in their hands hidden. So they both had the intention of killing each other as soon as the money was shown. 
Yeah. <laughs> but Josh, are you are you interpreting this? Are you thinking he died at the end as he's sitting in his car? Because we do get a very light coming through the tunnel kind of shot as he's sitting in that cockpit. Yeah, I I think the dude's dead. I think like we have ventured more into his fantasy world and uh this is like as he's dying he thinks he drives off into the sunset and he thinks that irene is longing after him kevin how about you i think whether he is literally dead like when he is driving at the end or not i think you know his life is pretty much over like i think he is probably dying or dead it's either fantasy and he's dead or he is, you know, basically just living out his last moments, dry, doing what, you know, he does, driving into the night, basically. But I don't think there's any happy ending here. Kind of like Thief. What do you think, Sean? Very much like Thief. Although I, I, I do... Thief does seem to be a literal ending. Yes. Um, of walking away into the night. But, yeah, there's no redemption for this guy. I think that's really the main takeaway, is... Like that kid said with the conversation, there are no good sharks. Can't you see? He's not a good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this shot of like, so he leaves the money and drives off with Albert Brooks' body lying there. And then we flash to his apartment. We see Carrie knocking on his door. There's no way this woman is going to his apartment trying to be like, hey, are you okay? Are you around? After he stomped a man's head into a grape. Right. Got her husband killed. That's probably number one. Or, you know, she could interpret it that way, at least. One A and one B, probably. (laughs) But it is sort of like the incel thing of, oh, they're going to miss me when I'm gone. Yes, absolutely. Well, and then I think you could take the final song. Just real, real human being and a real hero. Just repeating those words over and over and over to the point of it sounds like bullshit to me. Yeah. If you have to keep telling yourself over and over and over that you're you're a real boy and that you're a hero, it means you're probably not. Yep, I totally agree with that. It is interesting that it uses the word human being too, which is like like I think I mentioned earlier, he does seem to be missing something that makes you know a normal human being like there's just something vacant behind those cold steely eyes do you think as an actor it's hard to give a performance like this or do you think it's easier than playing a completely fleshed out human like who who are you more impressed with james Kahn or gosling hmm. question i feel like James Kahn overall because he hits a lot more emotional notes in his in that single performance Uh, and I mean you get to see when he is sad and broken after Oakla dies you see that moment you see him like pause and reflect and try to figure out what to do with his life with his vision board now but you also see him hyped up and excited and talking to uh, uh, Tuesday Weld about what he wants in his life. And then you see him hold an entire office at gunpoint and say, I'm not the man you want to fuck around with or with which you want to fuck around. However, he says it like 
this, the weirdest way that he says it, but... I am the uh, last guy in the world that you want to fuck with. I think that's exactly exact line. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I think that that con performance is really a lot more uh, nuanced than what is being asked of Gosling here. Not that Gosling can't do it, but I think the material demanded something different. Yeah. I'm not an actor, so I don't know, but I do feel like just playing a vacant human being, you know, just sort of like, you know, unfocusing your eyes and relaxing your face and, you know, trying not to, you know, portray any emotion probably is easier. I don't know, though. I'm not an actor. I think for me, it's it's con because of like that one shot specifically of the doctor telling him Willie Nelson has died. Yeah. And the amount of different emotions he conveys without saying almost a single word is like it's a real tour de force performance by him so this movie makes me feel like um there's a a david mamet book called i just think it's on directing or on directing film um where mamet advocates that actors should not act that what you do is through the filmmaking process you entirely rely on montage to make your point and that everything should be an uninflected shot and through the culmination of shots you build up meaning um but i think you take these two films like watch them back to back you can do it this david mamet way where i mean carrie mulligan plays very flat in this movie not as like um Albert Brooks gets to be a little more and uh, Ron Perlman definitely get like, he's growling and like his kind of ape like uh, demeanor. But I think you put these two back to back and you see that there's more than one way to do it. um, Apart from like the more classical Hitchcockian kind of structure uh, that, that the driver is based on. I feel like Sean, what do you, rate this movie i this is an interesting one because i think i think i enjoyed thief more but i still think this is also a four and a half out of five for me because mm-hmm. this is just it's so good <laughs> it's the shots from inside the car just shots of like driving through downtown la in the middle of the night like at the start or it's just the way the dashboard looks and the lighting. I don't know what makes this look so good, but it does. And also the, the, the style choice that Refn uses to, to mix these visuals with this music, it, it just elevates it to another level. And this movie really also super impactful i think for a long time of setting a tone for what heist and action movies can be so uh four and a half out of five and i hope nicholas winding refn um, makes another movie soon because i'm a big fan of his kevin how about you uh i think i'm also gonna go four and a half out of five I mean, whatever, what you just said, it's absolutely beautiful. The soundtrack is amazing, you know, and it's just engrossing from, you know, the start of the movie to the end. Like it, it, it is a movie that demands your full attention. Like you just, you know, want to look at the screen the entire time. 
So yeah, I think it's super successful. I think it's still my favorite. It's the first one I ever saw, and I think it's still my favorite Nicholas Winding Refn movie. And I like a lot of his movies. Um, so yeah, four and a half out of five. I'm close to you guys, but I'm a sucker for this movie. I do give it five out of five. Partially, uh, at least because of not just the soundtrack, but the score, um, yeah. which this is not a surprise at all. I'm a big Cliff Martinez fan um, because, of course, he also scores almost all of Soderbergh's work. So uh, this stuff lands right in my wheelhouse and really helped introduce me to his more ambient electronic work, which they used in the Nick. Like that, that soundtrack feels like it could be an extension of this one. Uh, and I love the fact that he finds ways to weave his music into and around the movies that he's making, but still it's identifiable as his. I think there's a certain talent in like becoming invisible, but I really like seeing the the painter's brushstrokes as it were. And I think that uh, Martinez is really good at that. Like it's still identifiable as his, but he's also living within the world that the filmmakers are creating. And so, yeah. He gets the extra half star for me. That's two fives for you. Yeah, these. this was... I mean, maybe since Stalker and Annihilation, this is like my favorite double feature. These movies, I think these are some of... This is one of the most complimentary double features we've done. For sure. At least in a long time. Yep. Sean, do the thing. Oh, wait. Uh, no, I intro. I introed it. You, you outro it. Oh, this... Also, we have to do... Kevin, do you have anything you want to plug? A movie that you really dig or show a band? Just something that you want people to watch. Oh, crap. I wasn't prepared for this. I just watched Station Eleven, and I really love that. So I'd love for more people to watch it so I could uh, talk to people about it. My friends have recommended that one to me. So that's big. That's it. Cool. Um, Sean, do you have anything? With which you would like to to push? Uh, yeah, I would say... Let me just pick a random five-star movie that I like. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm listening to Annihilation right now the, on, on Audible. Oh! And it's really making me want to watch Arrival again. And Arrival is... One of the coolest theatrical experiences I've ever had. It's my first time in a theater with reclining seats and fully updated Dolby surround, whatever, shake the entire roof off the house kind of thing. And that movie was just mind blowing for me. So check out Arrival. Josh, what do you got? I'm going to go with uh, it's been out for a while at this point, but I'm finally catching up with brand new cherry flavor on Netflix. Uh story of a woman who goes to Hollywood with big dreams and a lot of talent and things go horribly awry for everybody involved and it's getting crazier and each episode I'm loving it more because of how insane it goes. Awesome. Yeah. I love a show that goes off the rails. Yes. And there's, there's a sex scene that outdoes anything I've seen in a good long while. Uh, with the amount of what the fuckery that is happening. And I really appreciated that. <laughs> really? Yes. 
Well, f- baseball's back in, and Fernando Tatis just got injured, so it's a good what? time for me to watch a movie with a long sexy- sex scene, because I have a lot of baseball to talk. <laughs> Did you see t- uh, Titan or Titan, Josh? I have not yet. Okay, I was just asking to see how that sex scene compares. It's pretty fun. Uh, I will admit, Titan, I didn't understand it at all, but really dug it regardless. All right, I'm going <laughs> to plug that too then. That's it. Cool. There you go. Kevin gets a twofer. Okay. Josh, outro it. Do it. Do it now. Go. Oh, so much pressure. Uh, well, I would like to thank our guest for giving us his time this week and uh, bringing us a movie. Thank you, Kevin. Sean, I'd like to thank you for these many weeks. We just passed our one-year buddy anniversary here on Pi Day. That's right. Yeah, we're we're officially friends now. <laughs> it, I have a I have a one-year probationary period for all people I meet. So you you have been an accomplice of mine, but as of yesterday, you're officially a friend. Oh, see, my probationary period is only six months. But you have to start a podcast within that amount of time. Otherwise, <laughs> friendship off. <laughs> so I'm, I'm ditching a lot of people. Uh, but for Kevin, for Sean, and for myself, I'd like to say, be kind to each other, take care of yourselves, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. 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 We did it. All right. We did it.